It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it's 1999. The podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 and various other things. Coming at you from inside a mailbox with a bullet here. <laughs> wow. In 2020, the godforsaken 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. I'm Phil Iskov. And back. yeah. This is my return to the cast because it has been <laughs> nuts. Yeah, um, man. What's going Apparently on? Apparently, you left and the world went to shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, correlation, causation, it's hard to tell. <laughs> but, um, which is actually uh, relevant for cigarettes because, you know, that's one of the great cases where they had, yep. to, pr- had yep. to prove causation instead of correlation. So there's your little history lesson for today. Let's talk about us. The only one you're getting today, though. Um, <laughs> So before we go into our pro- yeah, our return yeah. podcast on the Insider, we're we're coming back with we're coming back with you know uh, with w- with one of the heavy ones, and we're going to pretty much hit you guys with big movies and big guests moving forward as much as we're possible. We're going to try to anyway. <laughs> we're going to yeah. try to. You know, we still have to do baby geniuses and whatnot, but yeah. uh, we don't have to. There are no fucking rules. Podcast like there, there, used to, there used to be rules. There aren't any rules anymore. That's how I feel in general. You, want <laughs> yeah, to, know. you know what? It's like we always have been like, uh, well, we got to save the insider. We got to save three kings. We got to save. No. Nope. Nope. Boom, boom, boom. Insider election. Muppets. Insider. 
So, Listen, so it, it's true though. It does feel like uh, the guardrails are off. So yes, Phil, thank you for for keeping this podcast alive with Felicity Fridays. They've been fantastic. Um, the guests have been incredible. Um, wondering if I'm the reason we don't get better guests. But, <laughs> just kidding. I love our guests. But the guests we got some cool. great guests, Kenny. We got some good ones coming up. Really, really great guests. But Phil, what have you been doing during this um, pandemic and more? Uh, I've been, uh, you know, just uh, trying to keep my head down, trying to keep uh, get through the days, watch some movies, some TV shows, read, um, doing some writing, some developing. As have you been? You know, you've been working yeah. hard through all of this. Yeah, uh, it's been it's been a lot. But um, listen, I I, I think. Uh, think god willing we'll all be better for it on the other side of all of this so you know just uh, the best um but i have to say you know um i'm as as heavy as this movie is to start with um it's it it was unbelievably powerful to watch this movie through the prism of the world that we live in today mm-hmm. um it was a it was a powerful movie back in 99 and it is it is perhaps more important now than it was then. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, we're going to have our guest. You obviously saw her yeah. name when you clicked on this. It's Liz Hanna. She wrote the post. She's probably the, literally the hottest screenwriter in Hollywood. Uh, I wouldn't say that in front of her, but um, she, is, she is the hottest young screenwriter in Hollywood. And no. I wrote that short, long shot. Um, yeah. The post also more relevant today than ever. Yeah. I mean, it was only three years old, and that's kind of the point of the movie. But um, yeah, yeah, every every day, with every attack Trump um, voice mm-hmm. upon our media, uh, it becomes more and more important. So, uh, but I don't want to talk about important stuff. Let's talk about because we're gonna have Liz very soon. But again, we're gonna have Liz very soon. It's my be great. return. Just, you know, I, I haven't podcasted, in, I think over three months, maybe longer. Um, what probably. do you think? Maybe yeah, longer. probably right. So I'm just working out the kinks right now, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, we, we just, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think. The last one that we recorded was The Bachelor. Oh God, no! I think that was the last one we recorded in person. That might have sure. been why I stopped. <laughs> well, listen, I think Love Stinks broke you, which is fair. It would no, break, that, you know. No, the, the world broke me. <laughs> The world broke me, guys. It was what a confluence of these What happened things. was, you know, I've, I've hinted at mental health issues on this podcast. This had nothing to do with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, was, this was simply, simply yeah. a bandwidth issue. Um, my show, it's not my show. It's a show I work on. Uh, Step Up. It used to be called Step Up High Water. Now it's called Step Up. We got announced on Star, so I can tell you the show I work for. And um, I've been working on that for since October, and uh, we just keep going and going and going, which is great. I love my show, and I love the staff, and um, it's going to be great, and I hope everyone watches it. But that really heated up over the time. Anyone who had to work over Zoom during the pandemic knows that that is actually more labor-intensive than, yep. um, than going into an office. That coupled with a couple of development things, um, something for you know Quibi, which – Quibi, um, Quibi man, <laughs> Quibi can't say anything. Can't say anything else about Quibi. Um, not on mic anyway. Not on mic. <laughs> but uh, we're working with two tremendous 
young comedians, Jimmy Tatro and, and Christian Pierce on a project that will be 10 minutes in length every episode. That's really all I'll say. And, uh, and other things. And we're busy as shit and I'm so fucking tired. And something I had to give, and unfortunately, it was the podcast. But I've been, and I haven't even been listening to podcasts. I've been watching movies. I've been doing shit. But um, I'm so happy to be back. I'm so happy that we've come back with a renewed, um, a, a renewed sense of enthusiasm, and also a renewed commitment to doing the movies that we love from this year. We did get kind of bogged down in the dumps, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Um, but I am, I am going to listen. I think I can speak for you when I say I'm going to miss the theme song. Oh, we're still going to do them. <laughs> when something, I know, when I something's know. a dump, we got to dump it. Oh, I know. I just mean but, we won't have as many dumps is the point we're trying to make. I don't know if we're going to get as deep into the dumps as I thought we would get, but I, I, there, I foresee in our future, an episode where we cover, we won't watch these movies and we will just talk about them for a minute. And like do a Ooh. half hour where we can cover 30 of them in a minute. That's a great idea. Stuff like and that. We did them all. Then we did them then all. We did them all. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's 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 where I've been vis-a-vis the vis-a-vis life, vis-a-vis the podcast. So happy to be back. Phil has been very busy. He probably won't say it himself, but he sold a show as well. Um, that has not been announced, so I won't blow it up, right? Or has it been? No. No. But he sold the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been similar to yourself and similar to, I imagine, lots of our fellow writers out there. We are lucky enough to do a job that we can do from home, um, that we can, you know, do in the, in, you know, our home offices or whatever the case might be. And it's a gift. It's a gift mm-hmm. to be able to get paid to write to begin with, as I'm sure you can attest to. But, um, it is, uh, you know, um, so I'm just trying to keep myself busy and 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 not let myself get too um too mired in in what's going on. I I I'm not burying my head in the sand by any means. I'm I'm donating and I am keeping myself abreast of of the stuff that's going on and and um but uh yeah, it's 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 uh it's it's a it's a crazy time to be alive right now and I uh I think that we're all finding our ways through it. And, you know, as I, I, two white guys probably shouldn't be talking about what's going on um, in, in too much depth, though a lot of what is going on yeah. does call for everybody mm-hmm. to be acknowledging it and discussing it. And as we get into, you know, we've already done some movies that deal with things like this, but we are going to be doing a Spike Lee movie very soon, albeit one that isn't particularly about the African-American experience, but I do think it is very relevant to what's happening right now. Very much so. Very soon. We'll be doing other movies that deal with uh, similar issues. And even a movie like The Insider has a lot of relevance in terms of um, corporate overreach and government oversight and uh, truth to power and, you know, any number of things. Yeah. um, Social inequity, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's all you know, we, we can talk about it and hopefully be a little bit of a, of a place conversations can happen, which is really all we ever wanted to be. Um, yep. That's one. Two, Black Lives Matter. Fuck you guys if you don't think that. Um, if you don't believe that. I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast is on Yeah, if, you're, if you listen to this podcast and don't believe that, you probably should stop listening to this podcast. Um, I, you know, it, I, goes well, it goes well beyond that. that – 
idea. Um, I think so many people have said it uh, in the form of speeches and columns and literally posters that get yep. our, our that get our thoughts across. I know Phil and I are almost lockstep in our in our thoughts because we talk about it every day. But um, thank God, yeah, we we, we we do. Yeah, yeah I mean, listen, I, I it's. It's a it's it's a critical time. It's a crucial time for for everyone to be talking about this stuff. You know, I think that it's um, you know it's it's important to be uncomfortable right now. You know, I think that we uh, we all look for comfort and we all look for things that are easy because uh, life is hard, and I get that. But um, you know, we have to be uncomfortable. And we have to talk about these things, and we need to start a dialogue about everything. Um, so uh, we hope that this episode in, in some way or another will add to that. And we have other, obviously other movies that, that we'll cover, you know, uh, the hurricane and any number of other films that talk about sort of the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, uh, we look forward to talking about those things as well, but, you know, at the same time, you know, we still want to have fun we're still going to cover, you know, fun, silly movies like, uh, you know, Baby Geniuses and mm, uh, Muppets from Space, and Elmo which, and which will Land be and Elmo and Grouchland, yeah. sure. Too bad we already um, did those things. I, I, I do, I do want to say one little thing, yeah, please, because please, please. I do think, you know, the majority of our listeners mm -hmm. probably are white men because they fit the demographic of film Twitter. It kind of is what it is. Maybe not the majority, who the fuck knows, but um, mm -hmm. a, good, a good percentage, a good percentage are sure. white people. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't really matter. Uh, my only little word of advice, because as you can tell from the show I write on, um, I wrote, wrote on, I write on Step Up. I wrote on The Hustle um, with Prentice Penny. Uh, I spent a lot of time in black spaces writing black characters. Mm -hmm. um, and here's what I've learned. The best, I can, the, the best I can get across what I've learned, because I don't think that anyone is saying – white people can't write these characters full stop. One is trust yourself. If you're a good person with good intentions, that will come across even if you don't always say the right thing. Two is listen. Mm -hmm. Three is know what you don't know. I think that's extremely important. Don't assume that you know things, sure. particularly about the black experience in America that you don't know general when you're talking yep. to a black person, you don't know, um, you don't know the full, right. the full extent and four, and this is like the, the, the most critical thing, humble yourself, humble yourself. There is no margin in pretending that you know what you're talking about when you don't know what you're talking about. Listen, be willing to change, be willing to accept that there are experiences that you don't understand be willing yep. to accept there are things that you will never understand. Like I, you've seen that slogan. I know I'll never understand, but I stand. I think that really does get across what what um, what really the, the essence of this should be from a white perspective. You never will understand, but um, there are ways to be a creative outlaw, ally and also be someone who can reliably write about their about the experience of Black people in America. Uh, what also not acting as if you are an expert acting as, as if it is your experience the history of 
creativity, the history of narrative fiction, the history of writing in American television, writing and film writing, or people writing experiences that aren't theirs. There's nothing wrong with writing about an experience that isn't yours. But for you to pretend that it's the same, for you to pretend that you understand without doing the research, without speaking to the people who actually live that experience is fucked up. And and, and, and the definition of white privilege. And the definition this idea. of white privilege and white supremacy. That's right. Um, I think that a lot of, you know, it's it's a lot of people wait to talk. You know what I mean? A lot of people are just looking forward to talking rather mm-hmm. than listening to another person and wanting to hear their own voice. I say this with a podcast, but I do think that it's incredibly important to, to just to underline what you just said, which is um, listening to other people, understanding their experience, trying to understand their experience, trying to get outside your bubble um, is incredibly important. It's always been important, but it's more important now than ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we do? So it's, where do we go from here? Um, you know, listen, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm naive. Um, I, I certainly have been called that by many people over the past couple months. I believe that, that, that we're going to be stronger moving forward as a country, um, as a planet, quite frankly. Um, and you know, we're, we're going to learn from the mistakes that we've made and we'll still continue to make mistakes. I mean, that's just the nature of, of you know, human folly. But I think that that's, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about our future. Otherwise, it'd be hard for me to get out of bed in the morning. But I'm, I'm mm-hmm. cautiously optimistic about our future. I, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> not optimistic. Because I really I do hopefully think that Trump is going to lose. And I think that's 50% of the problem. Um, I understand he's a symptom. But I think he's... But I think he's a symptom that has overwhelmed <clears throat> large parts mm-hmm. of the uh, large parts of the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that will quell a lot of the the way we're feeling to some extent. Mm-hmm. But it's only fifty percent, and yeah. we're not anyway any any closer to the way there. If I if I were to suggest anything in general, mm-hmm. um. I think what I think what white white people and white men in general have to accept is it's, of course you have to accept the the white that, that that we're privileged and I think people are I think people are all over the place uh, Republicans are saying things that I've never heard Republicans say before that we do have a racial problem in this country that there is a system of oppression in this country. And you have Mitt Romney actually saying black lives matter. And, and so, so needle is moving, but what we have to accept is that white men, white people run 85% of the television shows. Um, and white men in general, I think have 67% of TV jobs. White men are 31% of the population. That's going to have to change. Yep. And there are going to be some a lot of white men who are kicked out of this industry. And what I hope we do, and by we I mean white men, and I know it's not going to happen, and I think this is like central to the fight going on. And it's not necessarily people like people on TV, but there is a level of protectionism that anybody would have about their livelihood and their career is understand – that we've been the beneficiaries of a rigged system 
for a long time. That we've been the beneficiaries of white privilege, of going into a room, of being expected to understand certain, certain things about the privileged characters we write and the privileged upbringings that these characters have. The great majority mm-hmm. of, of characters on television are upper middle class or higher. Yep. Um, we have generally we're going to meet with these same white showrunners who naturally feel at ease with us. I think that's the whole point of, of what we're talking about. And for things to change, the number of white men in all positions, executive producer, and staff writer is going to have to go down and ultimately going to have to go down to 31%, around 31%. And you're going to have to bet on yourself that you're in the top half of your race and gender right now. And that's what it is. And if you're not, what are you doing anyway? If you're not, yeah. you're just yeah. someone who's taking advantage of a rigged system. So I have yeah. no choice if I truly believe this to say, if I'm in the bottom half and I'm one of the people who has to get kicked out, that sucks for me and my family, but it also is just and fair. So that's the hard thing that you just have to accept. I, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. You know, we, 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 you know, the, everything's going to, everything has to change. You know, um, we, we, we have to create a, a fairer world um, and, and a more just world. Um, you know, and that, that's, that's, that's a hard, that's a big boulder to push up a hill. But I think that um, in a number of ways, we have to do this. Um, so, you know, but again, I, I, you know, not to, not to, uh, um, dilute anything you're saying, obviously, but, you know, I do think that the insider does really highlight a lot of these issues. Now it doesn't obviously talk about race. Um, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's not, that's not part of this movie, but, um, but it talks a lot about, you know, the damage that corporations are doing to, this planet to society, um, the inequality that it is creating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's a really important movie and I, and I, I couldn't be more excited to talk with Liz about it. Um, I think that, uh, the parallels to the post are obviously there, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see sort of, you know, anyone who follows her on, on Twitter knows how, how active politically active she is, how, brilliant she is about the issues and that that are you know that we're dealing with um as a country and as as a as a species quite frankly um and i'm i'm uh, i'm really excited to talk with her about it so uh we will uh we'll be right back with uh with liz hannah talking about the insider okay and we're right. back <laughs> i grew up in new york and connecticut <laughs> where new york and connecticut because that's uh, connecticut. in manhattan in grand village and then in westport connecticut all right i grew up in westchester Oh, there you right, go. Right in the middle yep. of where you yep. grew up. Yeah, you know up. what I'm talking about. Oh, I sure. Yeah, yeah, I was so excited. I mean, could you imagine me sitting here for three minutes waiting to hear what part of New York and Connecticut you're from? <laughs> I yeah. hope it delivered. Like I hope the, <laughs> the promise was uh, worth the premise. The honor. Whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, yeah. You'll definitely the, the hear dream my, is uh, to talk to a fellow New Yorker slash Connecticut-er. Yeah. So. It's a weird border. It's like you're kind of a New Yorker. You're kind of not... There's not really a word for anybody being from Connecticut, except like. I made one up. A Yankee. A Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're like predictably New England. So there's like nothing fun about 
Connecticut except like the Merritt Parkway in fall. And that's literally the most boring thing I've ever said in my life. The Merritt Parkway <laughs> is beautiful. It's beautiful. Yes, that's, the that's, yes, the median in the middle is gorgeous. Yeah, that's that's the median in the middle, right? When it catches that fall foliage, it's yep. gorgeous. Yeah. Right. yeah. I, I, I think there's uh, a very specific train that's going on right now. Yeah, there's sure. a very specific train. Also, to my four uh, fans that lived in Connecticut, I fared thee well. Thank you so much for <laughs> listening this far. Fairly well. Um, so, did you. Were you watching many movies in 99? Did yeah. you see this movie in 99, for instance? Um, I think I did see this movie in 99, but I didn't watch it. Like, I didn't really understand it in terms of its kind of, like, gravity or or even in its, um, like, um, its successes until much later, like, when I was in college. Um, which I guess wasn't much later, but a few years later. I, I was always going to movies. My mom is a huge movie fan, and so we would go every week to the movies, and we would just see what was like on in the theater. There wasn't necessarily specific, like, we have to go see this movie. Um, we were always watching movies growing up. So, yeah, I was always, like, a movie fan with really, like, no discernment of genre, except horror movies were not allowed in my house. That was, like, mm-hmm. a, that was the only thing that was not allowed. <laughs> Do you like horror movies now? No, nah, no. I, re- I mean, I like I, I like thrillers, like, and I like I can handle a scream if you throw it at me. I can mm-hmm. handle like a, a David Gordon Green Halloween if you throw mm-hmm. it at me. I can't handle. I I don't fuck with aliens, and I don't <laughs> fuck with ghosts. It's like I just I'm not yeah. I'm not down with it. So, which is hilarious because my husband primarily works in genre, so we'll like get to a certain extent of him being able to talk to me about what he's working on, and then I'm like I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. I won't sleep for a week. Come yeah, at me. You're like, like diagram kiss, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I just want, like, Silence of the Lambs is kind of like my perfect horror sure, yeah. film sure. track. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I I appreciate and respect the Alien franchise for what it is. Sure. I appreciate and respect ghost movies. <laughs> I'm, I'm down uh-huh. with them. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Yeah, that's, so, that's how you, I feel about spy movies that take place in Europe. What? Well, yeah, Kenny hates spy movies. But Hannah, do you? How do you feel about like your your vampires or your werewolves? Are those considered horror to you, or are oh, they not part of your interview with a vampire? Because I can get down with some like young Lestat. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure. down with that. Um, <laughs> sure. I, I think if we're talking like. I don't know. I guess I haven't seen that. I mean, are we talking Teen Wolf? Because I can get, get down with some Teen Wolf. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess my point is you don't have a problem with monsters necessarily. No, like, not necessarily. Monsters yeah. I'm like pretty okay with because I yeah. generally hope they're not real. So yeah, they I don't feel do like that's fine. Ghosts and aliens, I'm a little bit like, joke's yeah. on all you guys. They've yeah. been here all along. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do have a monster in the White House right now. But other than that, I agree with you. Oh, God. Um, so... I guess my question, you know, obviously there are parallels between the post and the insider just in terms of, you know, uh, journalism and all that sort of stuff. But did you mention to me when we were figuring out uh, what movie you were going to come on, that this was a movie you watched when you were working on the post, coming up with the post. How did it inform that? Well, I think what's interesting about the insider and the post is that neither of them are paper chases. You know, you sort of know um, from the get-go what it is, you know, yeah. or, or fairly in terms of the insider and the post, you know, within probably the first act, what it is that Jeffrey Wigand in terms of insider has discovered. And then sure. it's really a kind of a moral and ethical conversation of, 
his safety and NDAs and like, which anybody who hasn't seen the movie was like, oh, the movie's about NDAs? Great. I'm going to go watch that. Um, it's a great movie. You should watch it. Somehow Michael Mayne made an interesting movie about like whether or not he can testify um, because of NDAs. Um, and so similarly, The Post is is like very much, you know, at least um, at the outset of when I was writing it initially, um, was very much a thriller that was like a, a moral and ethical thriller to a certain extent, mm-hmm. you know, like by the time that Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham and the Washington Post had gotten the Pentagon papers, they'd already been, they'd already started to be printed in the New York times. Um, they hadn't been printed elsewhere, but they were, they, the New York times had all the information. And so it was really a matter of kind of like piggybacking on what the times it did and then continuing once they weren't allowed to publish anymore and, and really, you know, putting themselves um, in court with it. So it was very influential to me. I also find it like I'm, I'm, I think maybe the reason that I don't necessarily like, I'm not drawn to horror in a very broad sense is because I don't, I'm not attracted to plot as much as I am character. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, I think plot is great. It's necessary. Um, if it was just two people talking, like I would go see it, but probably not a lot of other people would. Um, <laughs> but I, I just am in general more attracted to um, what makes a person tick and what makes somebody, you know, being able to or attempting to depict a very human element to characters rather, and, and a gray area to characters rather than just saying this is right and this is wrong. Um, what are the conflicts that come into making those decisions? So the very long winded answer to your question is I, I watched the insider a lot and, and I think it's, it is very difficult um, having tried to make one, you know, a, a ostensibly political thriller thriller that is just about whether or not somebody's going to do something not, and it's not revealing government secrets. It's like, no, we already have them. <laughs> we already know what it all is. Are you just going to talk about it? <laughs> it's, I mean, both of these movies and I would say most movies, I guess most movies of a journalism to a certain degree are, are process, right? They're about figuring out the details. It's about seeing people go through the process, which I fucking love. Like I love seeing people digging around and, and finding the truth. I mean, I, I like to think that audiences are drawn towards things that feel illuminating and feel like they're showing us something that we didn't know before. Um, the insider in particular really feels like sort of a Venn diagram of everything we're dealing with right now in a lot of ways, you know, whistleblowing, corporate greed, media manipulation, delineating of medical information to the public, all of this stuff. And I was saying to Kenny, you know, before we started recording about how, you know, this movie was powerful in 99. I really loved it in 99, but watching it through the prism of the world we live in right now, this movie just feels infinitely more prescient and and so much more perhaps Mm -hmm. important than it was back then um how do you feel about watching i mean about it i I agree i mean i think you think that like w hadn't been elected yet you know like we hadn't (laughs) even gone through the the like the the insane turmoil in both the world but specifically to the united states over the past 20 years is you know it's insane to have watched this in 99 and be like man we're gonna get those cigarette guys and now it's like 20 years. I mean, yeah. it's, it's similar. You watch like the American yeah. president and he, the, the climactic speech is about the environment and gun control. And you're like, yeah, that'll, yeah. we'll fix that. And it's 20 years later. And you're like, no, we're actually still waiting for another speech like that, apparently to get everybody on the same page. Um, because people that like fictional presidents more than real presidents. Real um, president. That was the nineties. We had, we had, 
it's really crazy to think about it. It, it did feel like we had won to some extent, mm-hmm. right? That we had dealt with the big things. And now we're on, I mean, the big things like war. Um, and now we're on to uh, things that are very important for our future, like the environment. I mean, if you remember the Pelican Brief. Oh, preach the choir. I talk about the Pelican yeah. Brief all the time. All the time, the two judges were killed because they were super pro environment. Like right. that was, the, that was the, I know they're like you're never going to believe it. A really conservative judge and a really liberal judge, they have one thing in common: they love the Sierra Club, and they both got <laughs> murdered for it. But <laughs> and they, that's our science fiction version of uh, of a political thriller now. Seriously, I mean, so so that yeah, the '90s were a little different, and it's funny because when I was watching The Insider, which I didn't think. I mean, look, I fucking loved it. I I felt like homework in '99 for me, but I loved it this time. I, I said to Phil, it's basically a flawless movie, but I'm not super compelled by the um by the subject matter, particularly in the times we're living in. Mm-hmm. That changed over the course of the movie. Like it, it got to a place where the, you know, the the allegory of the whole thing, uh, kind of brought it all up in my own head to a place where, yeah, everything about it is flawless. Um, you know, it's, but I don't know if you can make a movie like this right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is really kind of what it boils down to. Like, is it worth it? Right. That's kind of the the for me, that's the takeaway of 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 the of the insider is that, you know, was it worth it for him to go through all this turmoil and go through, put his family through all this turmoil and, um, you know, have his life threatened yeah. and his all of these things? Destroyed. Was it was it ultimately worth it? And I think that, you know, the thesis of the film and the thesis, as far as I can understand in reality, is that it was worth it to him. And I think that is what I think find extraordinarily relevant um now and and you know was one of the reasons that and one of the things we talked about when we were making the post is you know you you have to have truth tellers to power you just have to because otherwise power begets you know delusional power as we currently have in the white house and i think the the bravery of be it a journalist, be it a normal guy who is a vice president at um, a cigarette company, be it um, any number of, you know, the people marching on the streets today. Um, I think, you know, it is, it is uh, an unfortunate responsibility uh, of, you know, for the people who are good people and people who understand right and wrong to, to take that on their shoulders. And I think, that's for me constantly when I see movies about whistleblowers or movies about, you know, tellers of truth to power, that's always relevant. I'll go a step further on the, is it worth it? Because to me, it's, oh, it's that plus, you know, what price, what, what, what is your soul worth? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a figurative soul. Although I believe in literal, literal soul as well, but that's a figurative thing, right? What is your soul worth? Because Jeffrey Wigand isn't some government inspector who showed up and was always kind of doing the right thing. Jeffrey Wigand sold his soul. This house was built on, you know, the death of people who died of lung cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, he, I think he had a, a moral responsibility to himself mm-hmm. to lose it all in, in search of, you know, writing it to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, kind of what we're going through with this white house with things like jim mattis putting that out yes uh in the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks i think he's i think he's probably been having a crisis of conscience for years by the way this is a man whose nickname is mad dog mad well <laughs> I, I thought it was chaos until trump ch- 
It doesn't Come matter. On. Jim, Mad Dog Chaos. Mad Dog Chaos Mattis. I know, um, man. Well, what price are these people's souls worth, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Ultimately, and you know, a guy like, it seems like Steve Mnuchin says, eh, give a shit, you can have my soul. <laughs> and there are other people who are, who are looking what they wrought. And you know, the great movie about this, it's the simplest thing of all time, is Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. Where, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're, have seen it, but we're just at the end of Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. He kind of realizes, oh, I, uh, I, I, I've been helping the enemy this whole time. Oops! And he <laughs> blew up, and he blew yeah. up the bridge on the River yeah. Kwai, and and destroyed everything, and um, killed tons of people. And I think that's kind of what's happening in the Insider. Ultimately, I yeah. think he realizes I, I've been working for the bad guys. I, and if I, I also don't change. I will have no soul. Michael Mann had uh, there's a couple quotes from him that that speak to this as to what he was trying to do with the film a little bit. He said, "What really motivated me was a real journey into the internal zones of these two people. Lowell Bergman is unselfconscious and comfortable in his own skin. He's so centered. That's at the core of his ability to find out and get what he needs. The other guy is living within well-architected, constructed surmaculums. Sorry, it's sim- you know what I mean <laughs> of a life that he inhabits only a part of Jeffrey Wigan has put himself in a state of contradiction in relation to how he should be perceived in his own mind. The actions that count it's actions that count, not what motivated you to do them. There's no purely motivated action in this motiv- motion picture, not on the part of Wigand, not even on the part of Lowell it's life. And I think that I agree with part of that, but I also think that Wigand is really grappling with a, a decision that he can't, basically a bell he can't unring, and he and he is desperately trying, in some way or another, to navigate through that throughout the movie. Um, and I I don't think he successfully does so. I mean, I don't know. Did you guys by any chance watch the sixty minutes piece, the actual sixty minutes? Piece? I've seen it. I've, I've haven't seen it in the last like twenty four hours, but I've seen it in like um, the last five years, six years. It's really fascinating to watch, um, not only because how tremendous Russell Crowe's performances in terms of mimicking this man. Um, and also in terms of how Michael Mann recreates the seven dwarfs footage, it looks mm-hmm. basically uh, perfect, but it's also really interesting because you, you actually get a little bit more of a sense of the man in that 60 minutes piece than you do in the film in a lot of ways, because Michael Mann being such a emotionally distant filmmaker in a lot of ways, you're, no. never, <laughs> you're never really getting inside the hearts and minds of these characters so much as a tone poem of what it might be like to be them, I guess. It's just, this is a reflection of how a human might interact with the world. <laughs> this one, I, I'll push back guys. Come on. This one is different. This, this one feels very different to me. I also like, by the way, I like, we were emailing about this. I mean, in my I, heat is one of my all time favorite films. Of, it's it's like, forever. Oh, yeah. it's, just, it's heat is exceptional. And like there I mean, we'll we'll talk. We can talk about it later. But there's like this really Al Pacino in the movie is bananas, Foster insane, like shit crazy. And then you learn that he was supposed to have a cocaine addiction in the movie, and they yeah. just cut it out. Yeah. So there's like playing, this yeah. is not. I, I kind of want to turn to somebody who has never seen the movie before and watches it and be like, "Do you think this is how a normal human behaves?" Because they collectively were just like. No, it's totally fine for him to just say she has a great ass and the most insane tone of voice and not be on cocaine. That's just a regular person. I love that, by the way. 
I, it's, that's, it's one of my yeah. favorite parts of the movie is that yeah. he clearly is a coke addict and they never show him using coke. Um, Absolutely. And like when he comes back after the coffee scene, and <laughs> looks out, it's like it's yeah. my husband and I have done the coffee scene together before. And like, I, it's really quite embarrassing, but Are you Pacino I, or De Niro? I'm Pacino okay. because it's just, it's way more fun. Let's yeah. be honest. It's, like <laughs> way, more fun. it's yeah. way more fun. Second best performance he's ever had. Second best scene. <laughs> Um, I would agree with that. It's, um, it's, it's a great movie. But going back to The Insider, <laughs> yeah. like I, I do think – I also I, – I think there is something to um, – and I, I'm not – I don't find these performances to be necessarily blank slates or anything. But I do think there's something interesting to presenting a whistleblower or a journalist as very kind of everyman, very, you know um, – no specifically like distinguishable things about them other than they're just like living and breathing and dealing with things, uh, you know, because it's, I think it's potentially a much easier way to relate to them um, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, having a character that has their specific, specific flaws and, you know, wants and da, 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 da. Like I, you know, the ticks and things that, Russell Crowe does as Jeffrey Wygant, like watching the 60 minutes video, you realize this is actually just how this guy behaves. And, and it's, uh, I, and again, like I'm, I'm not, not because I, I frankly think it's one of Russell Crowe's best performances. And I think it's really um, artful in the way that he doesn't make it feel like mimicry. It feels like a depiction, but I do yeah. think there's an interesting conversation to be had of making the two heroes of the movie more reflections on ourselves of so it's like who pick a character that you relate to be it Wygant's which or Pacino and then I'm going to only give you enough information about them as characters to have a cohesive film and cohesive arc but other than that like bring what you bring onto them Mm-hmm. And would you do it? You know, like, would you be Pacino? Would you be Mike Wallace? Would you be, you know, who would you find yourself being in one of these situations? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that the, the 60 minutes interview really highlighted for me something that I wish I saw a little bit more of in Wigand in the film, um, <clears throat> which is he got into this. And by this, I mean, working for Brandon Williamson, um, with somewhat altruistic notions of trying to make cigarettes less cancerous, mm-hmm. um, and and that he's a, a man of science. You see that in the film to a degree, um, and you see it maybe more specifically in the car scene with the two of them. He's talking about the Tylenol bottles and 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 this idea yeah. of of protecting people. I mean, obviously his daughter suffers from asthma. He he, all of this stuff adds to it. But seeing it come out of the actual man's mouth in sixty minutes about how he got into Brenna Williamson and 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 whether or not he was deluding himself mm-hmm. for the money and what have mm-hmm. you, but that that his notions were purer than the movie gives him maybe credit for, mm-hmm. which. I think is an interesting choice and, and speaks to what you're talking about in terms of the moral gray zone that he wants both of them to live in so that the audience is having to make their own decisions a little bit more about the character's motivations and, and what's going on inside, which is, you know, classic Michael Mann, obviously. But I, I think there's something um, really interesting to that. The 60 Minutes piece I found really enlightening. Yeah, I I would also, to add to that, I mean, I think, you know, with the post-Ellsberg, you know, kind of... S- Similar and dissimilar to Wigand, I mean, it was actually it was almost the opposite. Where um, Ellsberg was a hawk, you know, like he believed in the war, he supported the war, he, mm. you know, was really like really didn't um, 
entertain arguments against it. And then in the process of educating himself and being a part of the the creation of the Pentagon Papers, you know, learned that he'd been lied to as the you know American public had been lied to for decades. But what's interesting, I think, about what you're saying is there, and we we struggled with this on the post as well, is that there isn't really a villain. I mean, the villain is decades of presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, ostensibly, it's Nixon and his government because they're the ones trying to to stop them from currently printing it. But they're not actually, I mean, Nixon is is actually very, very rarely, I don't think he, I actually don't think he's even mentioned in the Pentagon Papers because they were done yeah, before he was president. Before president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been, it went in one ear and out the other. It's been a while, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I'm, and so he wasn't even defending secrets that he had any um, part in making. And so it's the idea of what the villain is in a movie is a really interesting conversation. And in The Insider, similarly, like you can say Big Tobacco is the villain. You can say the Seven Dwarves are the villain. Wygan is actually in some ways the villain of the movie. You know, and in a lot of ways, he's the one who did keep his mouth shut, who did participate, ignored his altruistic, you know, ideals in joining the company or or let them kind of disappear. And now, as you were saying, Kenny is sort of like buying his soul back by telling the truth. But his reluctance which is, you know, what the movie is about basically is his reluctance to speak, his reluctance to break his NDA, his reluctance to ultimately go on 60 Minutes. It, it, that's the conflict of the film. So it's kind of interesting that actually the the hero of the movie is also the villain. So I think that's that's a great point. I mean, this is getting into, you know, some real low-lying bullshit that is, <laughs> that is beneath this conversation. But I do think it's relevant. Uh, in its own way to what you're saying. Um, yeah, the protagonist of this movie is not Wigand um, in any way. And that you know, that's why I hate that he got nominated for Best Actor. Um, <laughs> because I don't think you can give Best Actor nominations to people who are not protagonists. Um, We've had this debate, Hannah, for Liz, for quite some time. Kenny and I's mm-hmm. debate as to what determines... It, it is not screen time. It is whether or not your job... The job of this character is to get you to empathize with them. Full stop. It is the hardest thing to do to get the audience to empathize with you. And I do think there's some of that in The Insider where you are yep. meant to you are meant to project yourself onto his position. But the person who the, the person is the hardest job is Al Pacino by far. Because he has to sell you on this idea that he is so pure of heart. He's willing to go deep into the belly of this corporate beast. He's willing to walk into the ocean to have cell reception. <laughs> I love that scene. It's the oh, best. So, it's so it's, it's like one of those like ridiculous Michael Mann things. Oh, Michael like, Mann. Why is he I in know. the ocean? What? That's where this yeah, at like the perfect are. magic hour of yeah, like exactly. this. Just, yeah, I know, also casually walk into the ocean when I lose cell reception because that makes sense. Like, look, I know very little about technology, but I'm going to go ahead and say that a place I'm not going to have great cell service never is in the middle of the ocean. Pacific ocean. Man. I've lost cell reception as a person who's actually lost cell reception. All you want to do at that point is kill yourself. So (laughs) I will walk directly into the ocean. And if I don't get cell reception, I will go keep going until I drown. But the the point about the point about, yes, is, is I feel, you know, very strongly that it's, it's his story A to Z. He is the person who's dragging you on this or dragging you or you're going with on this journey. I mean, that's obvious from the, from the opening. 
which is my least favorite part of this movie. Can I? Um, I want to piggyback on that really you mean quickly. The opening that's basically the opening from Man of Steel. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or exactly. Batman Superman. I guess it's bad. Or no. Yeah, it's Batman versus Superman. It's where it's Batman, Batman versus Superman. Superman. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I, it's lit, but it's lit, it's like really trying to be the opening of the Insider. I was watching really this movie is. again last night, and I was like, I've seen this scene recently. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen this. It's just, it's not what I was expecting, by the way. My discovery of where that scene was was not what I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> Kenny, but, can um, I just yeah, piggyback yeah, I, on what you were on what you were saying really quickly on the on the Pacino of it all yeah, being the sure. main character? Because I feel like, and it speaks to also what you were saying earlier, Hannah. Liz, I don't know why I keep saying Hannah. Sorry. Is that the movie changes the villain halfway through and Pacino becomes more overtly the protagonist of the film about halfway through it as well. So the villain changes from being quote unquote, you know, the, the seven dwarfs and and the smoking industry to CBS Mm -hmm. and a media conglomerate. I I agree with you, Liz though, like just kind of at the core, it's not really about a villain. There's not, I like, I, I think, I don't think that's the right way to look at this movie, which is a, which is what I think you were saying. I don't think it's your classic. The conflict isn't between a protagonist and an antagonist um, in your hero villain mold. The, the conflict is between two people who have very a very different set of stakes going into this. Mm-hmm. It's one guy who is you know essentially much like you know Ben Bradley um, fighting for the First Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. Basically mm-hmm. saying like if we don't put this on the air. We're letting the government and corporations dictate what we can air. Therefore, there's no news. The other guy is basically saying, look, I, I have to do this because it's the right thing to do. But um, please let me do it on my terms so I don't lose my everything. Yeah. I think that's all he really is saying. He's just saying, like, please, if I do this, like, don't don't make me lose my family, my kids, my livelihood and everything. Like, I want to do it. And uh, and that's but I mean, it's that's also, a- But it's also like you can't make a deal with the devil and then ask to, like, keep the change. You know, right. like no. you, you made your deal with the devil <laughs> and now yeah. the devil's coming to collect. And that's yeah. really what it is. And I think, and, and it's interesting because I, I think, you know, we, we talked about this in the post a lot out between Bradley and Catherine Graham and that there is like, and I, I think about it now with what's going on in the world is like, it's very easy in terms of Bradley's mind in, in the post that like, we have to post, we have to publish these, we have mm-hmm. to publish the papers, we have to be in competition with the times. Like we have to, it's, it's not even that he's thinking about it as the right thing to do, which is an aspect of it. But the other thing is, is he's a journalist and he is competitive and he wants yeah. to have the story. And for Catherine yeah. Graham, it's well, if this happens and I do this and I'm quote unquote brave, like I could lose everything. And the conflict of sort everything. of, who is most right and who is most good is a really interesting conversation. You know, I think like what we're seeing right now with Black Lives Matter, with marching is I, I've continually seen and, and the protests and um, also Black Lives Matter. Um, but I know I said that, but I meant it as like a statement, not in reference to yeah. um, what's happening. But um, I think what there, there's like a learning curve and an expectation of a learning curve that's happening right now of, of you have to be the best. And I, I think a lot of people are putting it on themselves. It's like, you have to do the work in the next three hours to yeah. unlearn how you have inherently become racist in your life without even thinking that you were, but your predetermined expectations of things or your predisposed expectations of things, your privilege, all of that has 
made all of us who are not black or in general people of color racist. It's just we've had inherent biases that we didn't know that we we had and we should have. But I think there's an expectation that in about three hours, you're supposed to do all of the reading, all of the listening, all of the learning and suddenly yeah. know how how to be anti-racist. And that is on, on a number of levels unfair, but also completely uh, unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's much more about the process. And you can't expect somebody to go from one to 100 in three hours. You can expect them to go from one to 100 in maybe seven days, two days, you know, two weeks, <laughs> years, whatever, whatever our standard is. But, you know, I, I think we need to speed up the process. But but I think the expectation is that you're doing the work, that you are unlearning these things or learning new things. And I think the it actually goes a lot to what you were saying about Pacino and about um, Russell Crowe's character in this. And then to some extent, you know, Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham is that you sometimes can't always expect people to come to where you are in in as much time as you want them to. But there is a clock on it. You know, there is a mm-hmm. you can't take your pretty little time and more generations to figure this shit out. But if you could, you know, so come to where we are now, but understand that I think have empathy. Um, I'm saying this as, as a white person and I'm uh, definitely not saying that black people should have empathy for me. I'm saying that uh, as, as a currently as a white person who is trying to educate myself, unlearn all of these biases and things like that, I'm trying to give a little grace and patience to other white people in try in, in, in education as well. And as long as they're asking the right questions and doing the right things, um, then then that's what I can expect to this moment. And I think, but but I, th- sorry. Anyways, that was a tangent. But no, I I, I, th- I just think that. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. say that verbatim. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I will. I mean, should, yeah, because I I think we're all kind of living in this moment and thinking the same things. And I had said before you got on, mm-hmm. um, my little spiel about what I think white people have to do and expect. And if you watch these two movies, I think that there is a lesson in them, which is if you believe in a cause with all your heart, which I think we do, you know, we, mm-hmm. I think we believe in this Black Lives Matter cause with all our heart. We're not there. We have to unlearn things and relearn things and change things. But you have to also understand that in the end of the day, the beneficiaries of a rigged system are going to have to sacrifice, actual sacrifice, not just three hours out of your day to protest, not just X amount of dollars out of your bank account to donate, actual sacrifice. And the actual sacrifice we are going to have to make is not going to jail like these characters, like Jeffrey Wygant potentially had to do, or like Catherine Graham potentially had to do, is we are going to have to actually accept that there might be less work. There might be less work. And as I said to Phil, and you know, uh, you as well is, you know, I, we're obviously not going to change our career, so we're all going to bet that we're in the top, I think it's half of white people who would still work in a more equitable society where, you know, the people employed by this industry, rep- you know, are, are, is is proportional to the people in the society when you take in ethnicities and races and genders and all that stuff. Um, some of us are going to lose our jobs and it is what it is. And you have to, you have to just deal with that. If you really believe this cause, mm-hmm. that's the sacrifice you have to make. 
I'm willing to make it. Like I'm willing to sure. I'm willing I'm, I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to, you know, it's not as if like <clears throat> not as if it's random. It's not as if it's <laughs> Thanos. Like, yeah. I have a I have the opportunity to write my way at the top. So I'm willing yeah. to do that. You know, yep. and I think yeah. that's it, it, whereas, you know, black people in general have had to write their way into like the top 5% of their race to get into this, you know, into this conversation where they can actually be in writers rooms and be uh be be writing and and that in and of itself is a, is absurd. So yes. I agree with you. Absolutely. <clears throat> um so I'm going to give a synopsis of The Insider uh, half an hour into this podcast uh, real quick for people who haven't seen this movie, but were enthralled with what we were talking about. Um, after seeking the expertise of former big tobacco executive uh, Jeffrey Wigand, seasoned TV producer Rollo Bergman suspects a story lies behind Wigand's reluctance to speak. As Bergman persuades Wigand to share his knowledge of industry secrets, the two men, the two must contend with the courts and the corporations that stand between them and exposing the truth. All the while, Wigand must struggle to maintain his family life amidst lawsuits and death threats. Uh, the movie was based on the Vanity Fair article, The Man Who Knew Too Much by Marie Brenner and adapted by Eric Roth and Michael Mann. It was directed by Michael Mann. The Insider opened on November 5th, 1999 in fourth place behind The Bone Collector and The Bachelor. The fact that The Bachelor made more money than this is depressing. Uh, with $2 million, it would go on to make $60 million on a $68 million budget. It has 96% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 90% from audiences. Was, you know, yeah, yeah, oh, real fast. Was this, was this a platform? It had to be, right? I think it was. I, I think it was. All right, yeah. So fuck um, I'm going I'm to read a very brief uh, quote from Roger Ebert's review. Um, he said, there is, I admit, a contradiction in a film about journalism that itself manipulates the facts. My notion has always been that movies are not the first place you look for facts anyway. You attend a movie for psychological truth, for emotion, for the heart of a story, and not its footnotes. It's in its broad strokes. The insider is perfectly accurate. Big Tobacco lied. One man had damning information. Skilled journalism developed the story. Intrigue helped it blast it free the insider had a greater impact on me than all the president's men because you know what watergate didn't kill my parents cigarettes did so ouch there you go um (laughs) yeah right i don't know if i can Um, trust his review on this he's a little too close to this one yeah he's (laughs) um there's two other real quick clips that i want to read just from um bilga uh from vulture had an amazing piece on it it's 20 uh year anniversary said that maybe that's why the insiders still feel so relevant, uh, but downright prophetic. Man's film captures a key moment in the decline of American journalism, a point where corporate values took precedent over revelations that were clearly in public interest. But that phenomenon didn't start with the Wigand case. There's a central level of self-censorship and legal censorship that's been going on for a long time, particularly on the broadcast side, because it's an entertainment model, Bergman said. So I think that there's this sort of push and pull going on in this film, and we've obviously completely tipped over now in terms of corporate need, greed, whatever you want to call it, being more important than the news um, and and what needs to be sort of relayed to the people. But I also feel like that folds in, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, Liz, to your thoughts on – so. I don't think the insider deviates greatly from the quote unquote facts. I think that to, to Ebert's point, the essence is there, but that's a dance you have to do. And obviously you did it uh, with the post in terms of finding ways to make sure that you're dramatizing things and making a good movie, but also not, you know, making shit up for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. So 
Um, it would be how did be you nice do that? to be able to <laughs> yeah, make it up as you go. Um, you know, in terms of the post, we were actually very fortunate um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that you know the three to four weeks that take place over the course of the movie um, had all of this insane shit happen. You know, like all of, like the, every single thing, um, every single event that happens in the film we were able to source and we knew happen aside from um, the, the one scene that we actually didn't know if it, we kind of assumed it had happened. We just didn't know where in the timeline it happened was the conversation between McNamara and Catherine Graham. We knew the content of that conversation was something that they um, had had after the, the, they had won the case um, and after the, the papers had been published we just weren't sure. And I, I frankly, everybody's dead. So there's not really any way to confirm it, but we did kind of get a good, like a conversation we had with um, a few family members uh, and um, a woman who was Catherine Graham's research assistant while she was making her memoir. That was like, I'm pretty sure they had somewhat of a conversation about this either in this timeline or like immediately after. Um, we also like, were really, hard pressed because we're not hard pressed. We were very um, kind of nose to the ground because when you are making a movie about journalists, they get really mad if you make anything up. (laughs) It's like kind of a standard. Um, So we were very, I know it was really (laughs) stressful. Um, So we were really, um, you know, good about having consultants on set who had worked at the post um, who, um, you know, knew Kay, knew Ben, um, knew everybody involved and were really helpful in, in getting all the things that happened correct. But my, all my spiel is to say that like actually getting the events correct is not the difficult thing about writing a true story. Um, I, I, I frankly think the truth is generally more interesting than fact, than fiction. And if you are writing a true story and you feel stuck um, or if this happens to me when I'm breaking things all the time, I'll go back to my notes, like my research notes or the timeline and be like, Oh shit, right. This happened. And then you're like, okay, I know how that. And then the scene works. I right. mean, mostly because like you're the, the movies that we're making or the movies I'm making at least are, are, you know, about, uh, our character pieces. And so, um, generally we all are living our own mini character arcs every day. So you can kind of find them in, in somebody's true story. Um, but the really hard part is sort of making sure the integrity of the character is real and recognizable to people who knew them. Um, and that, and creating conversations that they never had or that nobody was ever present for, um, and making them feel, you know, congruous to who they were and, or are, and, um, what the content of the movie is or the series is. So it's, um, for me, it's like a multifaceted process that never ends. <laughs> um, but there's an initial research process of uh, um, I have an amazing research assistant who helps me of just finding out, you know, before I even sign on to doing a, a movie or a true story or something is just like finding out what's the story. I, right. I tend to believe that not everybody should have, I think very clearly, not everybody should have a movie made about them. Uh, but also, uh, I don't really believe cradle to grave movies work. Um unless you're Benjamin Button, um, yeah. which, you know, that was kind of specific. Um, so I, I mean, you look at Forrest Gump and that's not even cradle to grave, you know? And so it's, it's, I think, um, they, they just don't tend to work. And so you have to find the moment in that person's life where they were the most interesting, the most universally relatable. Um, and the, that provides frankly the backdrop for drama. 
Um, and, and when I had been writing the post or when I'd been thinking about writing the post, I wanted to write about K, but I didn't necessarily want to write about the Pentagon Papers. That wasn't, that wasn't like the, um, the drive I had. Um, I wanted to write about her. I wanted to find out what her story was. And it very kind of cleanly appeared, um, when I was reading Ben Bradley's book that I was like, oh, it's a two-hander between them. And it's really about this insane sort of four weeks where she went from being no one with no confidence, with no belief, with nobody believing in her to at the end of it, she was really embracing her title as the first female fortune 500 CEO, you know, and like very much embracing the idea of being a publisher of this newspaper. Um, so I think, you know, Sorkin um, has said it before uh, about making fi- uh, true life uh, narrative dramas is that it's not a documentary. If you want to go watch a documentary about it, either make one or read a, an article or watch a documentary. Um, and I think it's interesting that this movie, The Insider, was based on an article by Marie Brenner, who then later had a movie made about her um, called A Private War. Um, and she, like, also, if anybody doesn't know who Marie Brenner is, you should just Google her right now. Her uh, headshot is insane. It's awesome. She's wearing an eye patch. And also, spoiler, <laughs> the picture was taken by Brian Adams. Didn't know that, did you? <laughs> There you go. I'm glad I could give that to you. I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, Brian Adams has like an amazing side. He has an amazing side job as a portrait photographer. Literally. That's like what he does. It's awesome. He tours. Really? Yes. He tours and he is an editorial portrait photographer. I love people like that. It's so that's, cool. That's really funny. Yeah. It's so cool. I, anyways, I, so my other, my other question to you is, is, is sort of, you know, making a, a making a movie about journalism the, the pressure that must come with that to a certain degree, because, you know, obviously journalists are about speaking the truth and you just said you're not making a documentary. So there is sort of that, that push and pull that's a part of it. And I think that, you know, I, I've done a fair amount of reading, you know, before we did this podcast, just in terms of, you know, Bergman's perspectives on journalism, uh, mm-hmm. Wallace pushing back a lot on this film and Eric Ross just apparently yeah, at one point yeah. just getting sick of being yelled at by Mike Wallace and was like, I'm done. Like He's like, I have to deal with Michael Mann. I can only deal with one <laughs> mic at a time. Yeah. <laughs> one yelling mic, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's in his trailer writing Benjamin Buttons. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's, the, that's the cohesive thread in this. Yeah, and, and then spending his residuals on Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of, of of Michael Mann's perspective on journalism, there's this quote that I found where he said, "You've got a general disregard for truth, regardless of how high the standard is." Regarding to obviously referring to Fox News and Roger Ailes and corrupt information, what have you. He said, "Today, there's no revelation one could imagine that would have the power to change outcomes, or at least for more than two weeks." Um, and then Plummer has that great line that he says in the insider. He says, what we've got here doesn't go back together again. And I, I do think that, um, you know, we are, we, we have passed some sort of a Rubicon, um, in terms of, of not just truth, but just believing facts, believing the news, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess my question is sort of, you know, your film takes place, how many, 20 or 30 years prior to 1971. So it was, yeah, it was 20 years, 20 years prior to, to the insider. Um, you know, I don't even know what a movie about the current situation that we're in would even look like and how far we've sort of fallen. Um, but did you feel, I mean, I can only assume you felt a pressure to, to be honest and, and, and truthful with, with, with your film, but also just, 
I mean, I remember the build up to this film, not just because it was directed by Steven Spielberg and had Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep in it, but it was also a film that, that, that a lot of, they have a long future ahead of them. <laughs> They've got a big I, really, I think guys, if you haven't heard of them, you should look them up. They're really talented. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they're, they're really talented, but you know, a lot of people kind of looked to this film to be a savior, you know, that this film was going to change minds and that it was going to kind of blow the doors off of Trump in some way or another, just based on the power, the sort of the, the powder keg of the subject matter, the people involved in it. Did you feel that pressure? I mean, not to not to put more pressure on you, but. You know. No, um, I think it's a really good question. You know, it was such a strange experience of making the movie because from the time I sold the script, which was um, like end of October 2016 to the time we were in production was less than six months or just about six months. Oh, wow. Um, so there was, I mean, Stephen and Tom and Meryl all signed on in January or February. We were shooting in, in the middle of May or the end of May, beginning of May. I don't know. We were shooting like 10 weeks later, whatever the math is of that. Um, so there, there, aside from very initial conversations of, you know, the reasons we were all making the movie, the reasons I had written the movie, the the reasons this team was coming together and at the speed it was coming together um, were clearly um, very referential to the person who had just taken the White House and the things that were happening to the press in 2016, 2017, and, and obviously, unfortunately, have continued to happen over the past four years. Um, so we there were obviously very initial conversations about it. And, you know, the intention was to get the movie out as quickly as possible because we there was a response, you know, we wanted to say and show everybody like truth matters. It, it exists still, you know, believe that, that you can do this. Um, but, I, but honestly, then outside of that, there was like, just, we had to finish the movie. So, um, you know, we shot the movie f- for nine weeks and we wrapped, <laughs> I think August 1st and the movie came out, um, the middle of December. So, you know, with the less than four months later, it came out like 14 months after I'd sold the script. It was, it was bananas. So, so there wasn't uh, uh, an, an enormous amount of time to pause and have kind of these conversations other than ones we would have on set, which was about what was going on. You know, everybody was very heavily involved in, in knowing what was happening. I think the thing about it is that Hank said this while we were on the press tour at one point, you know, he was like, the North Star is no longer the North Star. Like, we can't even argue. We, 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 they even argue about that. We can't even just say plainly, like, North, South, East, and West exist. Um, and I think that it, it, it was a situation where things just kept getting worse. And, and I really think we thought that outside of the movie itself, but just we as a country would have like figured it out. Uh, and, and the press would have figured it out. And, and I think they're trying, I think there's a lot of, of really fantastic journalists who are doing, I mean, I think like Jacob Soboroff, the work he did, you know, exposing um, the camps, uh, you know, on the border and continuing his work of doing that. And, um, you know, there, there's some incredible journalists who are doing great work um, but unfortunately, there's a counter to that, which is, you know, fucking Tucker Carlson making himself a white supremacy meme. Like, it's insane to me that that's a, a reality that we're living in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was I, but I don't think it was pressure necessarily to answer your question more, more articulately. It was like it was pressure we had we were putting on ourselves. It, it was not we did not feel or I at least did not feel 
um, given I was like a first time screenwriter had never made anything. So I was just like, yippee, this is, you know, I'm so excited. Like my pressure was just like, I don't want to fuck this up. Um, I'm sure the other big hitters uh, who were in the film were feeling a certain amount of pressure. Um, but it was really just to get it right and, and, and to really honor, you know, all of the journalists who were involved in it, you know, uh, the, obviously the movie takes place is about the Washington post, but you know, the New York times and giving them their due and, and making sure we weren't ignoring them. Um, and then all the papers that after, you know, they defied the order, you know, the LA times picked it up and the San Francisco Chronicle and sure. that, that um, so yeah, that is a big difference between the post and, uh, and the insider. It's very clear to me based on what you just said and just in general that if, I think, you know, these kind of three liberal um, three liberal head, tips of spears in Hanks and and Streep and Spielberg um, said we have to we have to counterattack. Right. Mm-hmm. And the post is very much speaking to the moment. I don't know what the insider is speaking to. Yeah. And I don't, I don't discount it for it. I don't discount the movie for this necessarily, but I don't know what was happening in 99 that mm-hmm. this is already seven years have elapsed between the interview and we had already kind of won the war on tobacco. And, you know, with, with the exception of the little vape blip, it's unbelievable how far we've come from when we were all mm-hmm. kids to where we are today in terms of tobacco use, particularly cigarette use. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, it's amazing. It's like yeah. it's 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 the, the most incredible public health victory ever. Um, so and I can't put the whole country kind of rally behind it. But at that point, 99, we kind of had won that war. So, yeah, it's it's great to tell a historical story, but it's kind of irrelevant unless there's some kind of analog to what's happening at that time. And I don't necessarily know what it is, with the exception of maybe the court TVification mm-hmm. of cable news. The, mm-hmm. you know, the, the news for the infotainment thing, but I don't mm-hmm. really feel like that's what the insider was talking about. So I don't much. think so either. And I think, you know, specific to that, like the OJ case is kind of the best example of, of reality television becoming, you know, reality, re- reality you yeah. know, reality television becoming entertainment yeah. um, and like actual life or death matters and, and crises being a tenant, a, a entertainment fodder. Um, I think something not not to divert, but just because everything that's going on and it's on the top of my uh, in my head. These are two extremely white movies that we're talking about: The Post and The Insider, both very white. Um, I think what's interesting. I mean, they're also true stories, so they are depicting, you know, quote unquote, accurately the 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 race of the people who were who the movies are about. Um, would that, the, there's two sort of larger questions to me about, or conversations to me about that. And I don't necessarily think we can or should litigate them all, you know, right now, but I think the interesting conversation to have is, so I think the post is a really important story. I think the Pentagon papers is a really important story. Um, also a point of fact is that there were not very many black, um, journalists being hired at that time. Um, Ben Bradley was one of the You're first to today. hire yeah, or nor today. Uh, but Ben Bradley was, in, in actuality, one of the first people to hire black journalists. Um, but you know, at that time in 1971, the journalism, the the press rooms were not populated with people of color. S- the Insider 
we're talking about uh, a Fortune 500 company VP, uh, who and the, then the heads of the major tobacco companies, and an entertainment journalist or, or a, a journalist, um, and Mike Wallace, none of whom are people of color. I think the interesting thing in in reflection for me on watching The Insider last night and sort of think having all this in my head is it's not necessarily why make this movie because I do think the movie has value in being made. It's how in the in 1971 to 1991 when this the events of this happen that there are no people of color that are at the upper echelon of these companies. How are there no people of color that are in the press room? How, you know, how, how has that change not happened? And, you know, obviously in a very different way, but, you know, with the post, when we were making it, we were like, she was the first Fortune 500 CEO who was a woman. There's got to be more. And then we found out there were like 3%. You know, it's not like we've made enormous strides. So I think there's what's interesting in what you were saying, Kenny, about sort of like, what does it respond to now? What is that? It's not, I agree, it's not necessarily um, tobacco because we did kind of win, you know. Um, cigarettes are like $40 in New York City. So kind of, you know, we we, mm-hmm. we beat, we won that battle. <laughs> um, but, and there's no place to smoke anymore. So it's just, nice. it's really once there's nowhere to smoke, it's like a little difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so we sort of won that battle. But it is an interesting time capsule of, I think, what we cannot continue to have happen. And it is, and it's also a process. It is, we have to be um, better, you know, we have to put money in education. We have to put money in long-term education and post, you know, uh, post high school education um, for black people specifically, because this country is, I think, as we've learned, um, horrifically racist in specifically to black people, but in general towards people of color so that, if we make another insider at, in 10 years that Jeffrey Wygant is a person of color or one of the, I mean, I don't think of it, you know, I prefer them to be good people and we're not, yeah, no, you know, not like we're not, we're not whistleblowing against uh, something yeah. else that's horrible, but that the people who are in power, who are making these decisions are right. people of color are, yeah. you know, and, and it, Kenny, it goes to what you're saying about, being willing to lose your job or being willing to do this. But it's, it's also in this conversation of defunding the police. It's like, it's well, we have to put money into places where we are no longer looking at a reflection of the world in, in media and entertainment. That's just white and, and saying, and protecting ourselves by saying, well, it's a true story because all these people are white. And it's like, yeah, but why is that still happening? Why are we still making true stories about people who are just white? Because those are the people that are in p- positions of power. Because we're because we're lazy and scared. I mean, also bad, but you know, don't don't. I, I will not discount in any way that we are you know kind of we we have been built badly, mm-hmm. um, individually and as a society, and there's some real bad systemic issues. Um, but we're part of that, I guess, you know, as a tangent is we're, we're, we're lazy and scared, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I implore everybody. It's so much easier to tweet something and not do anything or oh, to yeah. not even tweet, yeah. you know? I implore everyone who's interested in this kind of conversation to listen to Franklin Leonard on Little Gold Men. Um, he goes really in depth on this stuff. Uh, and I'm going to paraphrase as, as accurately as I can but he said a few things that I think are kind of relevant to this discussion. One is the circular logic of why these don't get made. And he's had a lot of conversations. He's been a studio. He's been executive, the production executive. 
he is now, I guess. And, uh, and he's had a lot of conversations with the highest people. And his, his point is basically when he asks the question of why don't we make more African movies with African American leads, you'll hear they don't play well in foreign territories. Well, why don't they play well in foreign territories? Well, because, well, well, how, you know, and they'll say, well, how much money did you put into them? Well, not a lot of money in, in marketing in foreign territories because we know they don't play well. How do you know they don't play well if you don't put the marketing into it? So there's a circular logic of, well, we don't make them. When we do make them, we don't market them in foreign territories. Therefore, they do poorly in foreign territories, you know, fulfilling the prophecy of the beginning that they don't play well in foreign territories. And therefore, their money loses for us when it does. I, I actually really kind of despise the argument I'm about to make. I'll tell you what, I'll make the argument, then I'll tell you why I despise it. Obviously, movies starring people of color, and specifically black people, do well. We've seen so many examples of these movies doing well. They don't have to do well in order for there to be an impetus to make these movies. You know what I mean? Like, the thing that – like, yeah. like the, the idea that, all right, so Black Panther was made, therefore we know the waters are safe. Fuck that! Mm-hmm. Go into the waters with people. Mm-hmm. Tell stories. Trust people. So that's, mm-hmm. that's that's one thing he said about the reason why we we haven't done it. Um, and and I would just say go into the waters. Trust you know tr- trust that there that there are audiences there. There always have been there as will be. The other thing um, he said that hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's really important. And I've always kind of felt, and I really felt it kind of strongly around when Green Book won Best Picture. Yeah. My right, right, like my for like. Sorry, not to interrupt. Like so many things, but like read the room. Like so many things. I have so much to say, but like very basically, read the yeah. room. Not now. But there, and and you know, and I there 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 are a million things to say about Green Book, and like you know, one is coming off of Moonlight that that, that really Ugh. makes me feel like a one for you, one for us type thing. But mm-hmm. um, my yeah. issue with Green Book was never so much with Green Book. I do think you're allowed to tell a story like Green Book, and I do think you're allowed to tell that story from the point of view of the white driver. The story is rife with issues, but you can tell that story if you are the son of a man who drove around um, Don Shirley. Mm -hmm. You do not have the responsibility to tell it from Don Shirley's point of view. In fact, you will probably do a bad job like they did. 
what we have as an industry is a responsibility as a whole to represent this country. So if there were a million, let's, let's say it differently. If there are a thousand movies put ever every year, they should represent this country. So you mm-hmm. should have room for the insider and have room for the post and have room for a better version of green book and have room for all these kinds of kinds of movies. But you also have to have, not just movies by Ava DuVernay. You have to have movies by 20, you know, if there's 100 movies, 20 black female writers, black female Mm -hmm. directors, and 20 black male directors, and 20 LGBTQ directors. And all of these things, until, Mm -hmm. until we achieve equality and racial parity to some extent, and that, I, that seems, seems pretty obvious to me. So I think you're fine. I agree. I, I mean, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's interesting. So um, Trayvon Martin's uh, mother is running for uh, Miami-Dade County Commissioner. Her name is Sabrina Fulton. Um, I posted yesterday just like I, – I didn't know that she was running. I found out yesterday. I posted on Twitter about it. Um, there were so many people that responded. First of all, I posted about it retweeting a post she made that in it had her link to her website really like pretty idiot proof um like just you have any questions you can go to her website (laughs) go to her website go to her platform do whatever it is i can't tell you how many people responded in the comments that were like oh so we should just vote for her because of that first of all yes A. Yes. Yeah. Second of all, um, do you know how many movies, TV shows, political leaders, um, any industry have been elected or given their job or not asked, so why should we do that? Because they were white men. Like, throughout the course of history that nobody was like, what's their platform? They were like, I just like the cut of his jib. He seems like a guy I could have a beer with. Are you fucking kidding? So now there is a woman who is running for a county office whose son was murdered and the person who murdered him was released, was was given a not guilty verdict. Um, She is now using her horrendous experience to try and make a difference (laughs) and you're like yeah but where does she stand on like what's gonna happen in my are you fucking out of your mind stop stop it stop it everybody stop being that dumb it's like i just want to walk around and smack everybody upside the head a little bit stop being that dumb did you if you are a republican when if you are a casual republican when george w bush was running were you actually interested in what his fucking talking points were or were you like this guy looks like i could drink a beer with him and his dad was president so i guess i'll do that fuck the democrats it's just insane to me like don't unless you are by the way i do agree everybody should do their due diligence about who they vote for and political research and all those things but like just stop being this dumb stop being this dumb yeah, like white true. men do not have to jump through so many fucking hoops to go direct a movie. They do not have to go like it is just a fact. It is a plain fact that the in the history of this industry has been extremely racist, extremely sexist. Right. It's not like it's a revelatory notion. And the idea that exactly what you're saying, Kenny, the idea that we cannot have room for 
black filmmakers, LGBTQ filmmakers, every every gen, gender, race, non-gender, not, or non-binary, whatever it is, whoever you are. The fact that we don't have space for that because they're like, mm, but what if they don't make money? Really? Really? Come you know what just be, it, like, just be better. It's, it, yes. Be, uh, the, the thing that keeps coming through my head is grow up. Yeah. Grow up because yeah. this is just a bunch of people who don't want to let you sit at their table. That's all it comes down to. They don't, mm-hmm. you can't sit at my table. I don't know mm-hmm. any, I can't think of any other reason that this is happening. Um, and I, I don't know. You know, I mean, to your point about Trayvon Martin's mother, and she's a white woman, obviously not a white man, but you remember Carolyn McCarthy from New York? Mm-mm. Carolyn McCarthy was, uh, this is a big New York thing, so I don't know if you know this, Phil, but do you remember the Long Island um, shooter? Oh, yes, 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 yes. So on the Long Island Railroad, someone came on and kind of opened fire on everybody, and there were a bunch of people who died in the early 90s. And one of the people who died was, uh, I think it was Carolyn McCarthy's husband and son or husband or son. And uh, she wound up becoming a huge gun control advocate and ran for Congress. And I think she was a congressperson for, I don't know, maybe eight eight years. So four terms, something along those lines. Um, Granted, I was young at the time. I don't remember anybody saying what are her qualifications. That no. was qualification. And it still is, yes. by the way. That's the yes. point. She was a good congressperson. It still is life experience and you know, actually dealing with the the grief and the consequences of what happened. I'll, I'll take it a step further. It, is is life experience. You all know who Fred Gutenberg is, right? Mm-hmm. I've never heard anybody question anything Fred Gutenberg says. Nope. He stands up on the floor of Congress like, oh, his his daughter, Jamie, I mean, we know her daughter, was killed in in um, Parkland. Parkland, yeah. And uh, he has the right to speak. Of course he does, by the way. Not yeah. that he does it, but I've never heard anyone question it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll take it even a step further that AOC, uh, who, when she was running, was framed as a bartender. Yeah. She was, by the way. She was a bartender. She also bartender. looked like she was a great bartender. But she was a bartender who also, for years, had been working at a nonprofit, has a degree, I believe, in political science, uh, is an extremely educated and well-informed person. And, however, the fact that how she was making money at the time because she was not getting paid at the nonprofit that she was working at because she was volunteering was through being a bartender. She was, and frankly, because she's a woman of color, she was immediately dismissed and immediately attacked for not having experience, not being, and I frankly find that over the past two years, her um, both experience and education and uh, presence in government has been invaluable. Yeah. She says things that people aren't, aren't willing to say. She goes after people that other people aren't willing to go after. And she, I think, relates or people relate to her in a way that they've never had somebody like her in Congress um, up to this point. And Again, what's the similarity between her and uh, and um, Trayvon Martin's mother? They're both women of color. And it's, you know. Sabrina some, Fulton, excuse me. Some of our younger listeners may not remember this. But it was a mere 12 years ago when John McCain was trouting, was, was trotting out Joe the plumber and this person by their blue collar profession, and this person by the, it's the same exact thing. And Joe the plumber went on to run for Congress. The, the same exact thing. These used to be the people who had life experience, the kind of life experience that the Republican Party wanted in the representatives. 
But yeah, I, I, I think it's I, obvious. Know, we don't need to prove we don't need to prove racial and gender bias. I think people are kind of waking up to this. Thank God, even people I know who never thought this kind of stuff existed before, which is lovely. Um, but yeah. I, I also I think, think I think too. I, sorry, I was just gonna say. No, I, no, I think no. the last the last point I was just making. I think is tying it back to this movie is let let's have conversations. Let's let's expose the truth. Let's let let's let our journalists do the work, and then we'll go make entertaining movies about them. But in order to consistently change this, and I think for me at least on a larger scale, is it's it's twofold. It's one specifically looking for stories about. Uh, black people and people of color and making mm-hmm. sure those stories are getting out because there is a history that has been ignored in this country that, that I, like I'm learning about things every day that I'm like, it, you know, it's when Watchmen happened and everybody was like, what the yeah. fuck is black wall street? And, and, and like every single person I knew who was black was like, yeah, dude, that happened. And it's like, there are things that, that, that just, we, we don't know or, or, sh- and should have known, but didn't. So a, we should be, Hearing those stories, and and I also think not just specifically, you know, historical stories, stories of period of, of a period in time, or true stories, just stories about um, and by uh, people of color in general. I think that's one, one. Two, million percent. Yes, I, I I mean I think you know I think Moonlight is an exceptional exceptional movie, uh, not for the least of which that it, it's it's such a universal film. It is not specific it is in many ways very specifically a, a, a black film it's a, it's by black filmmakers about a black story but it's also a very universal story it's a, it's a very relatable story and it is not um it's not uh isolating to not be black and watch that movie you know so it's everybody let's just support on one side the other side is as somebody who makes true stories as somebody who is interested in journalism and exposing the and exposing the truth and getting the truth out there and moral ambiguity um we need to do better at having um people in press rooms and positions of power who are people of color um because they are then a part of all of these stories that we're telling um and not just sitting there watching it and saying well i would have been a part of this except that there are no black people in the press or you know, and I and I'm not saying that there aren't a, a, at all because there are some you know very talented right. uh, black people in the bus, but I'm pretty sure we could all name them. You know, like it's not. It, I think we could probably all specifically name the people of color who work at MSNBC and CNN on camera. Um, it's criminal to have. It really is criminal to have just one. I hate token tokenism. I mm-hmm. think really really um, backwards, and I think it ultimately hurts. I think it. Uh, to not have to, to have one just one black person in, in a writer's room or a press room or something mm-hmm. puts them in a position where they have to speak for the entire race or have to be obstinate and not speak for the entire race and mm-hmm. also not have someone to talk to, which is really alienating. Um, so so that, I, I, I want to make one more point about Moonlight real fast and then we'll move on because you're totally right about Moonlight. But the, be- the beauty of Moonlight to me is Moonlight is a black story and it's it's a traumatic story but it is not about black trauma mm. it's a character who is going is about a character who is going through something traumatic that has very little to do with his skin color mm. shows because so many blacks like it's one thing to people always get on hollywood rightfully so for showing black people as criminals or mm-hmm. serving in some way mm-hmm. a 
big problem is always showing them as oppressed and showing their trauma and re-traumatizing people, traumatizing people and triggering people. This moonlight shows that there are other forms of trauma that black people can feel aside from mm-hmm. racial oppression. Mm-hmm. And that's important too. Mm-hmm. You know, the mental health aspect of this and other forms of trauma are completely erased mm-hmm. from the pop culture landscape. I don't think the Academy understands how revolutionary the movie really is, but. Uh, well, yeah, I, have, well yeah, I have a lot to say about that. But, all right. Sorry. Um, Cause then about. the next year was a uh, green book. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, the, the, I agree. I, the last thing I will say is that, so I made a movie with an actor named justice Smith last year, my movie called all the bright places mm-hmm. um, that in many ways is about mental health. Um, the, the, the film it's based on a book, the, the screenplay and the book were, not about a specific person of any color, um, any race. Um, and justice was just the best person for the role and he's fantastic in the film. Um, but justice, while we, we made the move with Netflix and while we were rolling the film out, we all felt very strongly because it deals with some very severe, um, aspects of, of mental health, um, that we wanted to be responsible and get, have a conversation and, and, and let's just have a dialogue about it. And Justice recorded this. If you haven't seen it, I, I really recommend um, finding this video that he recorded for um, Netflix, which is about mental health in the black community and specifically in men in the black community. Um, it's really I, I don't want to attempt to paraphrase because I, I will butcher it. And I think his words should speak for themselves. But I found it extremely emotional to watch again as a white woman. Um, I, I think it was something, it speaks to a lot of what you're saying, I think, about um, Moonlight and, and sort of the, the the trauma that anybody can experience. But when you specify it into a group of, uh, of a people of color, um, into a black male community, there were things I just, I didn't know from, you know, not having experienced it yeah. or not knowing about it. So I, I would strongly recommend everybody take a look at that. It's, it's Justice Smith, All the Bright Places. And I think it's, it's about like black mental health is what the video is. It's, it's a great video to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that the insider struggles with representation in a, in a bunch of ways. Now, some of it, it doesn't have a choice. As you mentioned, a lot of these people happen to be white and th- those are the facts of those people. Um, that being said, I think that Wygan's wife and the female characters in this movie are not great. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is something that has been a, an issue for Michael Mann and basically his entire filmography. It, Same actress, he- by the way. Yes, Diane Verona, who, yeah. yes, uh, who was, who was in, uh, Heat as well, but yeah. it, it's, it's probably my least favorite part of this movie is her character and the way that that's depicted. Um, she, on top of the fact that having watched a 60 minutes interview, I saw what his wife actually spoke like and sounded mm-hmm. like, and it was not what Diane was doing. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it is a, it's a very hammy accent that just doesn't really work and really took me out of the film in a lot of ways. Um, and I do think that Michael Mann struggles with female characters, whether or not, maybe it's just not something he wants to explore. It seems like it's something he doesn't really want to explore. There are some good female characters in Heat, but again, like it's, I don't know. There are, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I listen, Amy Brenneman's character is interesting, I guess, sort of. I mean, Ashley Judd's character, again, like I'm not going to sit here and ride for his female characters. Like they're, they don't, they don't really work and he doesn't really Platinum blonde Ashley Judd. Fuck the world. It's great. Great <laughs> 
Love it. Right around the time to kill era. It's like yeah. really, it's a good, it's I'm, a good I'm time into the platinum blonde look. But um, but it's it's unfortunate because it does feel like there was an opportunity with Wygan's wife to show uh, what she was really going through, and instead she really is just very kind of placeholdery. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 you know, comparing it to the post and Catherine's character, which is obviously this this fully three dimensional and and a, a real person as well, but just the the empowerment that that movie gives her that that movie is all about her sort of you know um finding her voice figuring out what she wants to do with this company um with in the insider i just felt like i mean debbie mazar's character is literally called debbie like i'm not convinced that <laughs> say to debbie mazar like just be you like i don't it's it's crazy yeah there wasn't like a they were just like just hang out here you can't you, you can't you push it around you Get some, get you some lines too. Like it's crazy. That's not fair because that's not fair. It's well, I mean, it's it's it it does a disservice to Catherine Graham's character. She's she's a co lead and uh, protagonist of that movie. Yes, no, sure, sure, sure. And I I, I, I say, like to some extent, I don't want to. I you know feel like I've read interviews you've given, and and I have a little sense of what you're what you were looking for, uh, Liz. But like much like you were just talking about looking for stories about protagonists of color you were looking for a story about a about a female protagonist you yes. were you were do you were you were walking the walk to some extent so yeah he, i mean he's he, the, but I, I also you know agree with what you're saying phil which is like you know what movie did it so well uh nixon joan allen's mm. portrayal of pat nixon as mm-hmm. as a fully She's formed, what the fuck am i doing here how do I, how how do I use my own agency to work my way through this insane situation? There could have been some of that there for for Dan Corona's character. Absolutely, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, I was very much looking for um, a female protagonist, and and specifically Catherine Graham. You know, I think the thing that's interesting about the post. First of all, there are actually a number of female characters in it that I'm really proud of. I don't think any of them have any conversations with each other um, or ever in the same scene. Yes, they do. But, you know, <laughs> Carrie, Carrie Coon. I watched, um, I watched it this uh, week. You passed the Bechdel test. Don't worry. What? I watched it this week. You passed the Bechdel test. Don't worry. Oh, you good. passed the Bechdel test. <laughs> Fantastic. Um that was my, whew, that's been haunting me for three years. Um, I, uh, no, but like Carrie Coon, who plays, plays Meg Greenfield, um, obviously Meryl. And then the, the role that I actually like kind of, as we were getting into the script and as we're getting into production and was somebody that I really related to and was inspired by was, um, Sarah Paulson's character of Tony Bradley. Um, Tony and and initially in in a very very early draft of the script, Tony had a much larger role, um, and there was just much more about her and Ben's um, marriage. Which my husband was like, "Please stop writing about a, a conflicted a, a marriage in conflict and stop <laughs> writing it so well." And I was like, "That's a fair point." <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, I find Tony actually for me, um, and I think you know. Meryl's incredible. It's it's incredible. it's still an absolutely insane reality that I live in that she um, was a part of this movie and that she played Catherine Graham. Um, the speech that um, Sarah Paulson's character gives to Ben about Kay is actually for me the speech that I 
was really feeling at the time, which was, and I think a lot of women were feeling at the time was like, you, you don't know what it's like to be seen as different and to be talked over and to never see somebody else who is a woman in a position of power. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm actually butchering my own words, which is hilarious at this point. Um, I'm also quoting myself, so I'm really sorry, but I think it speaks to, it just speaks to, to actually for me, I, I don't think you need to have female characters populate your movie just to populate your movie, you know, just to feel that like, oh, well, there's women, so I won't get knocked on it. It's actually more than that. Um, it is not just about having a one-dimensional female character. Totally. It is about having a three-dimensional female character in as little or as much screen time as their character demands or, or needs to be there, um, you know. Paulson's character, Tony, is not in the film a huge amount. I mean, she's in she's in a fair amount because a lot of it takes place at, at the Bradley house. She's also, frankly, in a scene where she just serves fucking sandwiches. So, like, mm-hmm. it's not like we were, you know, like, rewriting history to be extremely liberal and, and, and um, feminist. Uh, but she also has a moment where she really, you know, says who she is and says what her perspective is and really helps Ben mm-hmm. um, come, to, come to an awareness of he... You know, and I love Hanks in that scene, too, because he's kind of like walking in with his chest puffed and is like, I'm going to do this. And this is all on me. And look at me. I'm a hotshot, yeah. you know, journalist and hotshot editor. And she's like, yeah, right. Calm down. Like, <laughs> let's just take the um, So I think speaking to what you're saying about the insider and, and I, I do think he is very problematic in terms of its female characters. But I also just think Michael Mann is problematic in, in his depiction of female characters. And if you're going into a Michael Mann film, you know that. I'm not letting yeah. him off the hook. I'm just saying, yeah. like, his movies are a shot of testosterone into my, like, aorta. So <laughs> I feel like I'm not thinking I'm going to see right. a wax, wa- uh, two characters wax poetic about feminism. Um, or like, It's, it's unfortunate that she, that she serves such a kind of plotty purpose is kind of mm-hmm. the issue, too, where she's just sort of, she's pushing against Wygand and, and, and make, I mean, and again, like I understand the purpose that she's serving, um, but it's just very bald and it's just mm-hmm. unfortunate that, that, that there wasn't a little bit more nuance in the way that she was handled. Um, I, and, and as I mentioned, I, I just, the accent kind of drives me crazy, but I mean, all, all that being said, um, I, I, I agree with in, you. I didn't go um, this film expecting it to be. Have like, you seen her in the Jackal? Cause that accent's going to really, really, uh, I've never seen the Jackal, but now I need it. It takes place in Europe, right? Yeah, that movie is not a spy movie that takes place in Europe. It's a spy movie that takes place, uh, I believe, in like Nantucket. Oh, Nantucket. Oh, yeah, I think so. All right. I mean, it does feel like Irish chaperone in it. He's a former IRA member. Chef's kiss. Great job. Great job. I mean, Verona likes to go big. I mean, Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's all she's she likes to 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 go sort of uh, chew the scenery, which is. I mean, listen, yeah. it is what it is. But I think, I, I think that this is a very. Interesting I also believe it's comp- sorry. I believe Sidney Poitier is in the Jackal as well. I really think it is, and I there don't want to make it is. It's Sidney fucking Poitier <laughs> in that movie. Just like. Which I also I just rewatched Seekers the other day, and I'm like, why did he not make more comedy? Seekers is great. What? He Sneakers is so. Is by the way, the Jackal's not a comedy, but he's really dry and funny in it. Yeah. And I'm like, you're just. Uh, he's a hero. Yeah. Um, no, the speakers is is so underrated. But anyway, great sorry. flick. So I, I want to. I think this is an interesting conversation, and I I I feel like I am um, 
as guilty as anyone, and you can go back over the podcast, of wanting every movie to be everything to every person. Yeah. And yep. and taking uh take taking the movie's task for negative or poor or it's not even negative, it's really what you said, Liz. It's the idea of, of paper thin representation of their female characters and their characters of color. And I'm kind of feeling a little bit like your point about Michael Mann just giving you a shot of testosterone into your aorta. That's true. You just got to – the last thing I want Michael Mann to do is to try and fail and fail miserably and fuck it up just to say he did it. Um, mm-hmm. That is the worst. You know, I like – like to, to, to some extent, I would just rather – him give me the pure Michael Mann shit. And I'd like everyone to give me their pure shit. Whatever that pure shit looks like. Even if that pure shit looks like Gaspar, no. And you just kind of take it as a piece of art and feel the way you feel about it and know that the only master they were trying to serve was themselves. And then you can move forward with it and you can engage with it instead of. I just, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I would just rather not have a female character than a poor depiction of a female character. No, and, sure. and totally right. that for me is far more insulting. Like we don't watch Vietnam war movies or world war two movies. And we're like, there's no women here guys. Like, are you what? Yeah. No, you know, like <laughs> I, I, I also would prefer that then to making them a, a plot, a, a, a character specifically for exposition or plot. Um, I feel like just then I'm good leaving me out of it, you know, just, just do what you're going to do. I also had a thought while you were talking that was like, what if you gender swap heat and it's just two women? I was like, I would watch that. That's what I would rather see. I would rather see heat with like Charlize and Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett or like Margot Robbie or like, you know, like somebody who's going to go all out. Like I'd rather see that. Yep. Or like, I I can't, I can't even think of, I'm sure there's like a thousand people I'm not thinking of, but like, I'd rather see that than like a, a really offhand depiction of, of, or a very, as you said, kind of paper thin one dimensional depiction of a, of a woman or a person of color. But as a, not a person of color, I don't want to like, speak for people of color but i would generally think it's like as a leave me out instead of doing a terrible version of me as a movie goer you know they honestly you're to to your point as writers i'm not a director but as your writers and and directors we owe it to the audience to populate our movies with real people and Mm -hmm. real people have internal have have uh, interior lives so yeah, I think that that I just cast it. It's Lupita in her performance from Us is playing Al Pacino. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. That's, what? That, uh, what was the movie we gender swapped, Phil? Oh my God, we uh, oh we did. Um, oh Tim God, Robbins movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Arlington Road. Arlington we did. We Road that one. would be a great gender swap flick. Uh huh. It's yeah. yeah. That's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> I just remembered something that I was going to say before, Kenny, when you were talking about villains um, and that you don't think villains can be protagonists. How do you talk about Michael Corleone? He's a, he's a tragic hero. Well, dear God. I, I, okay. I'll, I'll, right. I'll, this I'll, is not I'll, an argument I'll, I can wait into then. 
I'll parse it if you want me to. You don't, um, you don't want to go there. I, he's a tragic no, hero. I really he's, thought I had like a gotcha moment and then there was just more. And I was like, yeah. okay, no. No, I know this is not a I've, I've learned more quads. You can't gotcha Kenny. It, it's hero, antagonist, uh, tragic hero, and villain. And you can make movies about villains. It's very hard. Uh, yeah. I can't think of one that, like, a pure villain that worked. Um, yeah, and I really don't want to talk about the Joker, but I want to I say this. I was going to say, like, I don't want to talk about the Joker. And it worked. So I'm I, saying that's what happens when you try to make a movie about a villain. What about yeah. There Will Be Blood? He's a villain. Tragic hero. <laughs> this is, yeah, I mean, Liz, you're gonna you get into definitions with what Kenny defines as it's, as you know. But it's tragic, and listen, that's your prerogative. Tragic heroes end end as villains, so that's the arc of their of their character. But like Walter White is a tragic hero, right? Where I really feel like this is you're backing your own argument up, my man. But sure. <laughs> We'll so to, I just we'll want to, to, we'll to we'll have to come up for a different movie. But I yeah. want to I want to pivot for a second because I want to uh, piggyback on something I think you oh, said. Oh wait, Tatumis Ripley. Oh, done. Protagonist is a villain. Done. I win the argument. Tragic. There's hero. literally no way you can say he's a tragic hero. He's a murderer. He's not a tragic hero. <laughs> he's a tragic hero. He's, he's tragic not a tragic hero. He's an actual serial he's killer. A murderer. Yeah. He's a serial Paul's killer. Grace. I know. I. But... <laughs> I um, think I win. I think I've made the argument. I'm done. I agree. I, I agree. Will is emerge fully formed, but that's I, I, <laughs> <laughs> that's anyway. I, I think that you said something, or, or perhaps you did, Liz. I can't remember. But uh, the idea of of getting inside people's heads, and I think that one of the things that this film, The Insider, tries to do is literally do that with the fil- with the actual way that the movie is filmed. I think that Dante Spinotti, who uh, has worked with with Michael Mann on Heat, Last Mohicans, Manhunter, Public Enemies, he's shot most of his movies. They found apparently they found this Australian guy with a who would do uh, photography of insects with these incredibly sort of crazy lenses. That's why these lenses are like you're literally like right pressed up against them. Like you really mm-hmm. feel the weight of the world on these people's shoulders were literally on their shoulders and and feeling all of their pressures and I think that you know, whether or not Michael Mann is good at writing female characters, and I think we've all agreed he's not, I, I do think that um, he does know how to get inside visually the, the sort of moral gray zone of these characters. Um, and there's a lot of handheld stuff that's really beautiful. There's that handheld shot uh, when, when Wygand is running uh, on his, across his front lawn to his kids and his family. Mm-hmm. Like there's an urgency to this movie in the way that it's filmed, which comes back to you talking earlier about how Michael Mann can make the most mundane things seem mm-hmm. terrifying and and just and and filled with tension. I mean, one of the scenes that comes to mind is the scene with the the faxes. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's the, so good! It's, it's the great. fucking best. It's great. It's, great. <laughs> like, it's just he can tell so much with basically no dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think. Collateral is a really good example too of yeah. mm-hmm. of which is inter- is like an interesting little time capsule of digital filmmaking before we actually completely figured out digital filmmaking. Yeah. So like that movie would look infinitely different, I think, had it been made now. Same um, with Public Enemies as well, which was also in the early days of, of that. Yeah, um, I, I think that, I, but I, you know, you're really dealing with two people in a taxi cab for you know two hours yeah. or in real time it's like 90 minutes or something like that given one of them is an assassin but like for the most part it's the two of them and i think he's extremely close for the majority of the film on on their faces it's it's clearly something that i think 
is is something Michael Mann is attracted to, and it feels like it kind of started on the insider because in the last Mohicans, he's not. No, he's, it's like really classically kind of shot. Not really a, a Michael Mann movie. It's just no, it's, no. no. It's like well, it's feel- the female characters might be. Oh, <laughs> hey, oh man. Uh, I, I yeah, I mean, I I think that that. You know, the intensity that Michael Mann is able to wring out of certain scenes. There's one, I, I found this out, which I absolutely adore. Bruce McGill, who plays one of the lawyers mm-hmm. and the, the courtroom scene, which is a tremendous scene. I love um, Bruce McGill, And by it's the way. just crazy. Right. Bruce McGill. Uh, so he apparently, he's so good. He ruptured his intestines delivering that dialogue. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> That's the best thing is just <laughs> Wow. wow. And they didn't There's realize until the next him. day. So okay. I always love wow. people who look like they're going to be horrible people who are always in these great movies. Yes. So, yes. Yes. so you know that, yes. like, like, deep down, they're really wonderful people. Like a Ron Perlman, for instance. You mm-hmm. know? Like, seems mm-hmm. like yeah. the fucking yeah. worst. He's really great. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, And I think, like, Bruce McGill also like always plays like knows he has that look. So he like plays the bad guy or like the bet, you know, whatever mm-hmm. I love. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but he plays like a good lawyer, good guy lawyer in a movie. And I remember him seeing, it, and I was like, twist. Yeah. In the Batman trilogy. Where it's just, oh, I love when you're on my side. Yeah. <laughs> I so think the casting of this movie is, Gary is, Oldman. The casting of this movie is tremendous across the board. I think we can safely say, but um, apparently he was trying to get Val Kilmer to play Wygand in the early days of it, which I don't see, but who knows? Um, and then the producer brought up Russell Crowe, who was actually shooting another '99 movie at the time, Mystery Alaska, which we will cover at another point with, with Russell Crowe. What a joy! Um, what a joy! Uh, David E. Kelly wrote that movie. I um, know. Strangely, but uh, so he had one day off of Mystery Alaska. They flew him down to L.A. One day? No, 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 that's no. a joke. That's <laughs> he interviewed him um, for a day, and they talked about it. He hired him for the role. But I, I it's interesting that that Wygand had two concessions for the filmmakers, which is that he wanted them to change the names of his daughters, and that he didn't want there to be any smoking in the movie. Um, and they were able, for the most part. To, to to get away with that, but that tracks. Um, I feel we're like not going to ask a question. Uh, okay, go ahead. Guys. This is a waste. This is a very superficial question. This is a fun question. Does anybody hate Russell Crowe's American accent as much as I do? Um, I specific in this it. film or in all of his films? Uh, in this film, in specific, his Australian comes through every third word and it makes me want to run through a window <laughs> i didn't because he didn't ask way. you if you were entertained <laughs> <laughs> i hate that movie uh, yeah i don't like gladiator at all i think but, he's uh, you know it's interesting i felt like and kenny when you get a chance you should watch like even just five minutes of the of the cbs of the 60 yeah, the minutes interview, interview sure. because he is doing a very good impression of Wigand. Wigand has a very strange accent that, and 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 does these weird things with his lips. And he's always like, he's just he's doing a lot of weird affectations that could seem like I don't know a beautiful mind, for instance, but aren't. Like I think he's actually trying to convey the way this man is, which is a little bit yeah. odd. No, I did. Um, but I, I in terms of, of things of, that yeah. aren't his accent, 
were taken from, you know, some kind of understanding of this guy's real life. <laughs> but you can't really hit the R's the way that I'd want an American with that. I get that. To hit the I R's. get that. Um, I, would, I do I, think he's very good in this movie, and he should have won Best Actor over Kevin Spacey. I disagree. Can I talk about who should have won Best Actor? Al Pacino? Sure. Anyone? Al Pacino. <laughs> I mean, Al's great. In, in my opinion, incredible <laughs> in this film. He, mm-hmm. To me, like, I always I, I, I always kind of bought into this idea that mm-hmm. Al Pacino post, I guess, 90, you know, starting from Sense of a Woman, of a woman area. Uh, yep. was just a caricature, caricature of himself and, and never had an actual interesting good role. Um, <clears throat> any given Sunday, I, I absolutely love, as you know, Phil, and I think he's amazing. Yes, he's very much like the best version of that crazy Al Pacino. This is yep. a masterclass to me. He's this, very good. He's a real human being embodying this performance the way it needs to be embodied. I'm like, you know, Robert De Niro, Robert De Niro till I die. But um, But this is like, I don't even know if De Niro can do but I think Pacino's also like he's doing a really good slow burn in this movie. Yeah. Like it all feels like it's building up to the well, scene. He's not and playing a character who's mysteriously on cocaine, so that helps. Who knows? That helps. But it's Everybody it's all kind of leading. It's leading up to that scene in the CBS uh, corporate office when he really just like goes full out Pacino and then like comes back down again. So to your point, yeah, Kenny, any given out. Sunday, he's just at 11 the whole fucking time. Like he's, there's, there's no, like yeah. there's no simmer. Everybody in that movie is pretty much an 11 at all times. Yeah. And they might've all been on cocaine while making that movie for all I know. I mean, it wasn't Oliver Stone movie, so it's hard to say. I mean, I think uh, in my, who should have won best actor in 99, I've already mentioned the movie. It's, there's absolutely no way that Matt Damon does that performance as Ripley now and people aren't like just give it to him like here you go like we're not even going to talk about it you came out of nowhere you're fucking Jason Bourne you're yep. good will you're will hunting and you just did like I, I watched I watched that movie recently as a reference for something and like that, first of all the movie's insane it's like Philip Seymour Hoffman Jude Law <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow it's like all the, Matt Damon it's like all the hottest people <laughs> in 1999 are in a movie together <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, Kate Blanchett. Yeah, Blanchett. Yeah, it's just like, James well, who's hot? Let's put them in this movie. Do they look good in Italy? Great. <laughs> um, and and yeah. uh, the, and like that movie just like bombed, and nobody talked about it, and like it's it's insane. So I think Pacino's great. I actually, I, I agree. I think Russell Crowe is pretty good in this. There's like nothing. There's a, it's like trying to compare Daniel Day Lewis's performance in pretty much anything to anyone else in that year. You're like, oh, you win. Like you just. We, I guess I'm upset that I'm trying to compete with you because I already lost. You guys, I, I have to say that in '99, I was a, I loved Talented Mr. Ripley, and I love the reappraisal that's happening on Talented Mr. Ripley over the last, you know, five years or so, maybe even more recently than that. Um, I, I adore that film. I, I, I agree with you. I do think, though, you know, and there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking about had Russell Crowe run one for this movie, would he have made Gladiator and blah blah. Like, there's any number of things that could have happened, <clears throat> but. I do think he's very good in the film. I forgot it was Russell Crowe, which I think, in my opinion, is kind of, that's the bar. If you forget Mm. that the actor is playing this thing, then they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I think he's really good in it. I think that the movie has, and I just want to sort of jump around a little bit to a couple scenes that I just think are worth talking about. But one scene in particular that I just adore is the fucking golfing scene. (laughs) Just... 
the I, the way it's shot, the tension that he creates out of just another guy at the end of the driving range, and just that's the way it, it's just it's tremendous. Uh, and and I don't know why he goes golfing in the middle of the night. I don't. I, I mean, I'm just not going to question it. Michael Mann just that's thinks it looks cool. Golfing. Yeah. yeah. I like that, that is my privilege yeah. right there. I make all of my phone calls from the middle of the Pacific Ocean and also golf only at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, listen, it's, I, I don't think it's motivated. I, I don't think it's, but I think it's, I think it's a tremendous scene. There yeah, are, I agree. there are, there are people like that, sadly. <laughs> oh, I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. it. I, I think that to me in its own during week. quarantine, there's definitely people like that. Yeah. They're like, there's nobody on. There's nobody there now. I guess I'll go. Yeah. I don't have anything else to do. The the first really meaty scene that we get between uh, Bergman and Wygand is is the scene that I referred to earlier when they're sitting in the car and it's sort of it's after uh, you know. Wygan comes at him and says, you burned me. And, and obviously Bergman's like, I would never do that. Drops off his kid at school. They sit in the car together. And, and Wygand really kind of opens up. You start to get a sense of his scientific aspirations, what he was hoping to do. Um, but you really start to sort of see this camaraderie that kind of almost instantly grows between these two guys, which might be Michael Mann's greatest gift is finding the ability to bring two men together and they just feel like the yin to each other's yangs. Like they're just kind of the perfect symbiosis. And I, I think that I just love, I love that Wygan becomes a science teacher. I love those scenes. And there's only a couple of them when he's talking to the kids. I love, I love the science scenes. Me it's too. actually for me, like the sweetest, love like loveliest moments of the movie are him when he's teaching them. And he's like this, you know, there's like a joke he makes at the end and it's really adorable. He's like, I've never taught before. You've never learned this before. We're in it like the same way. And I was like, it's so like dad, it's such a dad joke. And it's like really, there's, there's something to it of like, of very much humanizing this whistleblower who is, you know, villain or not, uh, you know, kind of sure. <laughs> He's a tragic hero, as tragic uh, hero. To learn all characters <laughs> appear to be. The second one is an antagonist; it's anti-hero, but he's neither of those. Oh, oh, so sorry, yeah. um, but I think what's interesting. No, is I like, agree with you. Though, yeah, he, but he's like kind of a an asshole through a lot of this movie. You know, like he's like we as the audience are wanting him to yeah. just do it. We're like, just do the right thing. You have to do the right thing. And he's like, for good or bad or neutral reasons, doesn't do it. And so having him make these little jokes, make like sees, it's also interesting to me when you're seeing a character that the director and the writer are not showing you for the majority of a movie. It's like this little tip of like, yep. we are as filmmakers, we have blinders on because we're specifically telling a character to fit our purposes, a character arc to fit our timeline and, um, a, a, and a depiction that is, you know, affecting and helping and all of those things. But I like that there's like a little something that's like, this is just one side of this human being, you know, like he's also all these other things that we're not showing. Um, and it's kind of like a really smart little tip of the hat from yeah. Eric Roth and Michael Mann. I have a, I, I I agree. a great affinity for high school scenes in movies that aren't about high school. They mm-hmm. yeah. almost yeah. always feel more, yes. more realistic than movies that are about high school. I mean, I am on the payphone, like in the hallway. Yes. Yes. I just, I, I <laughs> movies about high school always are, are heightened and I understand why, but, um, but it is nice every once in a while to just see, you know, 
kids standing in a room and being somewhat respectful towards the teacher the way I think kids generally are yeah, uh, mm-hmm. in a high school setting, not throwing mm-hmm. spitballs or, you know, the, uh, calling them the, names. The, it's funny you bring up the payphone scene, Liz, because I love that scene. The only thing that bumps me is when Doug McGrath walks by, the, yeah. the actor who is clearly who's like the villain who's like trying to like dig up dirt and he so obviously walked by in a way that's just like what's happening why is this ridiculous that's fair that's fair but, i also uh, like you don't have a phone in the in like the staff room there isn't, it might be i feel fun. like even they had one in the faculty which is about fucking aliens <laughs> so how, how would you know that your favorite subject i've so i've seen the faculty i can ha- i i handle the faculty i love the faculty <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, there, there's I, there's two well, other things a, I want to talk about real quick. I was a straight American. I was just going to say about the faculty. I was a straight American female teenager in yeah. the time of Josh Hartnett. So there was not a lot I missed yeah. in those in those years. You like that? You like that bowl cut? You were all about it. I liked it when he had it like pushed up, and it has like absolutely no aerodynamic explanation of why his hair is both inverted and horizontal at the same time. Yeah, and yep. also in Pearl Harbor, where he has like a haircut that's from like 2002 and not at all from 1941. I think he, I, I think he had a hair colored bandana on. Yeah, oh, I think so. I'm pretty. I, I read about that. He, it was actually the Amazon X-ray a- feature told me. We we talked a little bit about Josh Hartnett in uh, Virgin Suicides, where he has a tremendous wig in the Virgin Suicides. Oh, great, really, which is um, the the other two scenes I want to talk about real quick is the uh, the Japanese restaurant scene, which I think is also really interesting. It's it's an interesting piece of backstory that that Wygand knows Japanese and oh, just yeah. sort of creates this infusion of of culture and the way it's shot is so Michael Mann like it's so minimalist and it's all these like wide shots of the two of the it's just it's it's very much him um and then the 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 sort of I would I would argue perhaps the climax of the movie is the scene we sort of referred to earlier which is Al Pacino on a cell phone at dusk in the water screaming at Wigand about you know everything that we've seen thus far and and it's a it's a real moment, which I would have liked a little less of the kids. I think the kids is a little a little heavy handed, but at the same time, I think it's effective. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the score is tremendous. It's it's just it's a real kind of like it's the it's the moment of the movie where like this movie is a best picture nominee if that makes any sense. Like this mm-hmm. is just sort of like everything distilled so perfectly, and it all kind of crescendos really beautifully. Um, you know, and then, and then obviously, you know, the, the, the film ends with us seeing the 60 minutes piece. And, mm-hmm. and I have to be honest with you, I got a little misty eyed when his daughter looks at him and, and he gets to have that moment of recognition that, that perhaps it was worth it, that hopefully it was worth it. Right. Um, it's, it's, I have I mean, to say I get misty eyed, like thinking of a good song now. So I definitely, <laughs> did, like in, in our current state of the world and a pandemic, Sure. <laughs> and sure. Yeah. everything is on fire. I literally can be. I was listening to something the other day, and I was like, yeah. "What's happening? I, <laughs> what, what is this? What is this mistiness?" That's. Um, I agree. I mean, I think what again in 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 true life um, climactic moments, and also depict things that um, have been depicted. The post is also the climax of the movie is on a phone call, which was something that really happened you know she made the decision to post it or to to publish it on a phone call we we had a lot of conversations by the way about that about the dramatization of that because 
in my original draft of the script, it was in person. Like Ben went like ran over to the mm-hmm. house and, and it was actually, um, it, it combined the two decisions she makes, you know, one that, that, okay, let's publish. And then the second one, when everybody comes over to the house and which both things happened. Um, but I was like, let's just have it be one. It's, you know, let's, um, compartmentalize. And, um, also, cause I was like, how the fuck is a phone call interesting? And unfortunately the Pacific ocean was not available, nor was dust. So, um, the Potomac, we, not, not quite the same. It was really, we were screwed. Um, but yeah. what's interesting is, so that was, um, so Steven doesn't, um, like do a lot of, um, visual planning before in, in terms of like, um, shot listing or storyboarding in term uh, before he prepared, you know, he's very like in the moment, and he's been working with the same team for about 400 years. So, you know, they, they all kind of get each other. Sure. Um, but that scene, um, we was the scene that we created a rig for. We, like I, you know, I was sitting at craft services while they were creating this, um, doing rewrites. Um, but that, that the crew built a rig that was, uh, that Meryl stood under. So the camera would sort of spiral around her at, on, on a remote. And it was intended to like heighten the tension and, and everything. And I do think it's interesting as much as I've made fun of it, that it takes place in an ocean and at twilight, but like <laughs> there is really, it's really hard. It is very difficult to dramatize a, a phone call and make yeah. that feel like it's the crux of the movie and make it feel we as audiences. And now we're dealing with it when we're making movies that have text messaging and things like that is like, how do you dramatize something that is really dis is a moment of connection is a moment of drama, but it's completely disconnected to how we as human beings hypothetically relate to each other. Um, it's also inactive too. Like it's, it's the least active thing you can do. <laughs> it's there's, I mean, you, I, so as much as I've made fun of it, him walking into the ocean does actually add some drama to it. So there you go. <laughs> he does. And I'd say Michael Mann talked a lot in interviews about talking to Bergman, obviously, but he at one point said to him, like, did all you guys fucking do was talk on the phone? Like, did you do anything else together? Cause he felt like, yeah. It, and, and to your point, like they have a bunch of phone calls, they have a bunch of communication, but it all feels varied visually mm-hmm. and also just in terms of the way that, that it's acted, obviously, it doesn't feel boring, but yes. it's, that, that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, long distance relationships on film don't usually last either. So yeah. it's, you know. It's true, it's true. It's also, it's interesting because Kenny and I talked a little bit about this uh, a few months ago when we were talking about our favorite films of, of the past decade, but looking at something like The Social Network and how David mm-hmm. Fincher can make a movie that's all about people typing on fucking computers and make it into this riveting piece of cinema is also a testament to, you know, our lives have become a lot less physically active. We don't go out in the world as much as we used to. So it's it, it's a hindrance on storytelling and on, on how you actually film it and, and make it into an exciting piece of cinema. So I mean, I think the social network is probably one of the most exquisitely written, directed, performed films of, of a long of uh, of a very long time. Um, and I think Fincher, you know, again, I, I made a joke earlier at the top of this about how plot is important because if it's just two people talking, then nobody's really going to watch. And that scene opens with I think it's a nineteen minute conversation between the two of them, yep. um, and. It is just them talking. Like it's also such sorkety dialogue that you're like, ping, ping. like whoa, wait, hang on. You're talking about something you said seven paragraphs ago, and I just caught up. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's real. I mean, I think it. It. I, I love when fin- I love Fincher and Sorkin working together because I do feel like 
it brings an energy um, to his writing that that it, it's not there necessarily um, in other but in other filmmakers' hands. Um, and so True. it's really I agree with you, but I mean the climax of that movie is uh, or not the climax, excuse me, the inciting incident is him getting drunk and posting about like girls <laughs> on a college forum. Yeah. Yep. That's yep. that you know what, that's interesting. I would have read that and been right like, there. I know how to do this. It's funny you bring up the talking uh, and Fincher because Manhunter, which I think is a tremendous show, and, and obviously, um, you know, uh, you worked on that, but that's a lot of people sitting in rooms talking. Now, the stakes are higher because all these people are, you know, uh, killers. <laughs> so there is an, a, a component of sort of that tension that's brought to it. But but I don't know that anyone right now is filming scenes, maybe Michael Mann, but like filming scenes the way Fincher films dialogue, the way that those mm-hmm. things actually play out. Um, so uh, as I mentioned to you on our emails, Liz, uh, we like to do top fives uh, at the mm-hmm. end of our episodes when we can. But I have and, to say uh, one thing before we go into this. Yes. Christopher yes, Plummer was in this movie. I know. Yeah, he's great. We didn't even talk about he him. He was 100 years old. Now he's 121. And he was in this movie... He's still alive, still getting nominated for Oscars. He wasn't nominated for this role. Winning, winning Oscars. He he won an Oscar after this, it's true. He yeah. he was not nominated, which is criminal. He was incredible. Uh, yeah. The man did his best work in his 70s, 80s, and now 90s. Uh, yeah, I just want to make one point about what he said that I thought was so amazing. This really is, to me, mm-hmm. understanding the interior lives of your characters and understanding that, you know, even though the point you might have is though the point of characters making might not be sympathetic to you or might not be the same as yours. There's value. There's, there's validity in it. It's two and a half hours into this podcast. My words are not coming out perfectly, but what he, <laughs> what he said, was, I ran out of coffee like an hour and a half ago. And I'm just like, it's, we're, we're running out of fumes over here. I'm, I'm literally yeah, we're, 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 we're wrapping up. Don't worry. Culture, <laughs> right. um, he said, there's the point where Mike Wallace is basically uh, Lowell Bergman is basically saying, "Why aren't you fighting?" Essentially, yeah. like, "What? Why aren't you on my side?" You're Mike Wallace, and you've been the you know a bastion of of First Amendment protection your whole career. And he said, "You know, I'm 78 years old, and there are certain things at this point that you just don't want to be remembered for, and there's certain roads you don't want to go down, and it's not worth it." He's essentially saying, "At this point in my life, the juice isn't worth the squeeze." And that kind of pisses everybody off to some extent. You when you, you yell at the screen and you say, Mike, you should be better than this. And he is kind of a villain in this movie for that reason. Mm-hmm. I want to point out that after this, in real life, Dan Rather put something on air that he shouldn't have put on air, right? With this George Bush National mm-hmm. Guard thing, that whether or not we believe it to be true, the story wasn't well sourced. It cost him his career and his reputation. Yep. Dan Rather, in the first line of his obituary, when he dies, Dan Rather is one yeah. of our finest news people. In the first line of his obituary, we'll say that he was unceremoniously fired. For, it was 60 Minutes 2, I believe, yeah. that this happened, uh, for a poorly sourced story on, on George Bush that I believe turned out to be not exactly 100% true. Mike Walters mm-hmm. was right. His career and his legacy, 50 years were on the line. And all he's doing is he's not the one reporting it. So all he's doing is taking Lowell's word for it and taking the word taking the word of a producer over it when he has the legal department on the other side saying, don't do this. That's a hard position to be in. 
So I think there is some empathy you have to have for that character in that moment. So I agree. And, 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 and there's a great line at the end where he says, you know, fame is, fame is fleeting, but infamy lasts a whole lot longer. Right. And I, I think that that's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Um, Eric Roth is really good at his job. It's infuriating at times. Yeah. Um, but I, I think uh, I think what you said is really true and something we haven't really talked about in this, which is strange because it's, it's something I find sort of vital to any project I take on and any project I'm working on, which is empathy. And I think, you know, it is really important to have empathy with every character um, or to to be able to at least practice empathy momentarily with them. I'm not saying um, sympathize or apologize or any of these things, but at least kind of go into their head for a moment. Um, Mm -hmm. You touched on Mindhunter. I wrote an episode, I co-wrote an episode of Mindhunter um, for season two where Charles Manson and, and um, Tex Watson are the two um, interviews of the episode. And it was really interesting it's weird to write sociopaths and serial killers because it's actually slightly easier because you're going into a fantasy world so you can kind of like trick yourself into empathizing with them because they're living a fantasy and they're just doing you know they're doing crazy shit so you're just like well if i was a crazy person and this is where i came from this is how i how i would think of these things um, whereas I find it, I, I wrote a lot of, also in my hunter, I wrote a lot of the BTK stuff. I find that much, I found that much, much more difficult. Um, g- yes, he's also a psychopath and, and a serial killer, but he was at that time, like not, he, that wasn't where he was at in that time in his life. You know, he was still murdering, um, women. And so it, I found it very difficult to do that. I think what's interesting to me about writing about journalists or people who are asking the questions is that the most successful ones are looking to empathize and are looking to the way that I get the best story across is if I empathize with whomever I'm interviewing or depicting or doing whatever. There was a William Barr piece in the, in New York magazine this Sunday, this past weekend, which don't get me started, but I thought what was interesting was it actually was like a very, and we can argue the merits of whether or not this article should exist and all of those things. But I thought it was a very well-researched, well-informed, empathetic conversation with, that, that the journalist was having about his subject. Um, and in not, in, in not condemning or, you know, it was whatever. And again, we can argue the merits of if at this point in our time we really need a fucking empathetic por- portrayal or profile about William Barr. Um, <laughs> God, I wish I had read it. What? I wish I had read it so I could argue it. But yeah, no, it's fine. It's really it's. <laughs> but I, what I think is interesting though is in these films about journalists and in these conversations about Mike Wallace, like so, you know, funny six degrees of separation or completing the circle or whatever. So that um, that Dan Rather, there's a Dan Rather movie called Truth, which stars yeah. Yeah, yeah. Redford and Kate Blanchett, which was directed by and written by Jamie Vanderbilt, who also wrote um, Z- um, Zodiac. Zodiac. Yeah. Um, so the Fincher essence is all <laughs> in there. Um, but I think his film Truth is also a really interesting conversation about about what you just said, about infamy and about really trying to do the right thing and just getting just not getting it right and the fear of that. And um, in going to what we're talking about now is like I've been having a lot of conversations with people about how People are like, well, I don't want to speak up because I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing or I'm afraid I'll say it the wrong way. 
And we all are in a position now where we have to be okay saying the wrong thing. Like we, we have to try because if we don't try, then we all stay silent and none of this shit gets changed. But if we are actually willing to put, put out whatever we're, we're trying to put out and get told like you didn't say it right or this is actually the way you think about it or here's the history behind what you're talking about, why and X, Y, and Z. And willing to be wrong and educated um, in in the in how to be right, I think that we'll all be a lot better off. Um, but it is really hard. It is really hard to be told like go put yourself out there and be willing to be yelled at or condemned or any of these things. I think it's it's a scary and journalists do it all the fucking time. I just write about them. So <laughs> I, I mean, I I mentioned that when Kenny and I were talking before we started recording, um, or even maybe when we were recording about this idea of being uncomfortable, like the risks mm-hmm. that come with that, the risks of what can happen if you say the wrong thing. Um, and and that, that those are the times we live in now. Those risks have to be made and people have to be made to feel, um, you know, to step outside their comfort zones. It's, it's mm-hmm. incredibly important right now. Totally. Um, and, 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 and you see that obviously in, in Mike Wallace, you see it in a lot of the characters in this movie, the risks that they take. And um, so are, are you, I know you, you spoiled your, your, uh, your top five Michael Mann movies to me on, on email, but um I'll just I, I I just figure we can quickly go through them just because it it it's uh it's a not a lot of them <laughs> short list on it um, uh, yeah I mean I I'll, I'll go through mine real quick just mm-hmm. uh, you know I I at number five I had Miami Vice then I had Ali uh, then Collateral then The Insider and Heat um, that's sort of where I'm at on him he hasn't made that many movies and if I'm being completely honest. I only rewatch two of them, you know, regularly. So I don't know what that says about the other three. But uh, where do you stand on Michael Mann, Liz? Um, my top five is one through four is Heat, <laughs> and then five is The Insider. Yeah, it's a solid list. <laughs> I also feel like Heat is like four different movies depending on the mood you're in or like what character totally. you're paying attention to or if you're like oh i'm gonna watch it today knowing that pacino has a cocaine addiction so like <laughs> i do think there are a variety of ways to watch it so it is a slightly accurate ranking but yes yeah. i mean i in all honesty like i've actually seen collateral a lot it's a movie that's like always yeah. on tv i've seen the insider obviously a lot i've seen um uh, <laughs> Obviously, I've seen Heat a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I think, like, the interesting thing to me is that his movies are, um, like, very well-made, very interesting, delve into interesting conversations, but they're also, like, great popcorn movies, which is something that mm-hmm. is really important, I think, it, it, at least for me. I don't speak for every filmmaker or, or anybody, but, like, I my two big things when I make a movie is, like, are people going to think about it afterwards and are they going to be entertained? Mm-hmm. And they yeah. feel like they spent $17, you know, correctly. Um, and I think he really does do that for the most part. I, I fully agree. I also would, I just to, just to highlight Ali for a quick second, which I do think is a movie that, you know, had a lot of Oscar buzz going into it. A lot of people thought it was going to be, you know, it came off of the insider. A lot of people thought to some degree or another, it was going to be his big Oscar movie. Um, and, and it disappointed at the box office. It disappointed as far as, as far as the critics are concerned. It's grown in my esteem. I've watched it since, um, I think it's filled with really interesting stuff, commentaries on Sam Cooke and, and, and Malcolm X and obviously Muhammad Ali. There's just a lot going on in that movie. And I'm not sure that he totally cracked it yeah mm-hmm. um but it's the the aspirations of what he's trying to do and and i think that it, he should be commended for for i think making trying to make a really interesting movie about complicated people i'm also a big believer in will smith as a serious actor like i'll watch him yeah. in anything i'm down yeah. I, i'll watch him in enemy of the state and ali i will sure. go on yeah. all 
all, all the carousel with him. I'm happy he's come back. There was this weird little period where he just kind of yeah. went away, and then he made that movie with Margot Robbie, which only I like. But um, <laughs> you like uh, what is that movie called? Focus. Yeah, Focus. I think, I think it's great. Even though I hate those directors. Yeah. Um, not personally. I'm sure What's your cool. list, Kenny? My list. Uh, Ali five. My one commentary on Ali is I agree with everything you said. Uh, I would like to see it made now. I want to see someone try again. Sure. Um, and it annoys me to some extent that if a major studio puts out a biopic, that's it. You're done. You can't do it again. <laughs> yeah. So you can do it again. Um, yeah. And I think I think now is the time. That's one. For- I would also say like – because of um, Creed, like box filming of boxing, like yeah. the actual act of it has yeah. really, I would just be so interested to be in those fights with Ali in the, the process, in the, in the steps we've made and the progress we've made in terms of technically filming that. And sure. Sure. You know, the, Ali's obviously been, he, he's, he's been the focus of so many documentaries and those documentaries are incredible. Um, and even like yesterday, I was just at my dad's house and he was just watching Ali Frazier, which happened to be on ESPN. Ali Frazier one, which happened to be on um on e- yeah on ESPN and classic or something in the middle of the day because mm-hmm. there's no content. They're just putting on old fights. It's amazing. There's so much more there. It's a hard. He's a hard nut to crack. And kind of to your point, I don't know. It was three or four hours ago, Liz. Uh, you do <laughs> try to find that moment of their lives that would be really compelling, and yeah. you know, it does have a bit of a cradle to grave aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's yeah number four. That's number five. Number four, Collateral, awesome movie. Um, yep. Jamie Foxx should have been nominated for Best Actor. Uh, <laughs> I'm also really here to like litigate the Tom Cruise assance and like the just Tom Cruise should have won Best Actor probably like three different times in his career. Mm-hmm. Jerry Maguire is just one of the all time like from mm-hmm. just. The best. Priceless. The best. Yep. It's the best. So I'm like, I'm here for uh, Tom Cruise in a gray wig and like being the bad guy. Bad guy. I, I also like really love that he, I'm, a, I am a spy movie in Europe fan. So I've watched like every Mission Impossible movie 12,000 sure. times. Yeah. I've also um, watched uh, all of the behind the scenes features. Um, <laughs> and like, he just tries so hard. Like there's he something does. like, he's just like, he's trying so hard. Like you just kind of want to go up to him and be like, "Take a seat, have a breath. You're going. You're Tom Cruise. Yeah. It'll be okay." Yeah. But like in Collateral, he's just he's really giving it. He is like, "I'm gonna yeah. be the bad guy." It's great. I mean, Kenny and I both agree that him losing uh, for Magnolia to Michael Caine for Cider House Rules is a travesty. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's the word that I mean. The, the the thing about that Magnolia performance is I love Tom Cruise so much. He's a a complete 100 in my book. Um, but Magnolia's performance is a different kind of 100 that I don't even know how to deal with. Right? Yeah. It's like watching yeah. a dog walk on his hind legs. Um, so <laughs> number three, four, four was collateral. Three was Manhunter. Guys, I don't love the original. Manhunter. The original Walking in the Ocean movie. Manhunter <laughs> is so fucking good, and it's good. It's, it's good. So it's like you've never seen a more beautiful serial killer movie in your life. Like the. The, the, the blood, on, the blood, everything is so white, Hard pass. and Hard pass. blood so, everywhere. It's Silence the Lambs, my man. Better. No, I, I, I mean, I like Silence of the Lambs better <laughs> as a movie, but there's just something about the way my hand, <laughs> the way Manhunter looks and sounds and feels. It's so scary. I love that movie. 
Um, I want to make one more point about Michael Mann real fast. He is the he is Nancy Myers for men. In almost every yeah. movie, I look at the the house <laughs> his characters live in and I go, I need that house. I felt that when I'm like trying to figure out what the kitchen equivalent in a Nancy Myers movie is is to like a Michael Mann. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but the first I mean, scene, the first scene in Lowell's house, I'm like. I was when they're in bed yeah. and they're like yeah. reading the newspaper or whatever. I was yeah, I agree. Salivating. And yeah. the grown, like the 14 year old kids come sit on the bed with them. That, yeah. that sounds weird, but there's like, that's a life you want. That is a sure. life well lived where every, where you're in this like, they, like this, this year round beach house. How f- yeah. cool is that? Okay. But you also yeah. don't want Neil Macaulay's house from Heat that has no furniture. No, and it's I want just like- Nero's house, right? Like sure, sure, that. Sure. I mean, yeah. I'm getting so far afield. Have you guys ever watched uh, Los Angeles Plays itself? No. no, it's fucking amazing. It's a three hour. It's a three hour filmed essay about uh, LA on film. You both will freak the fuck out. I'll, I'll that's definitely. What we were doing on this podcast. Yeah, I was gonna say we're we're, we're getting we're getting <laughs> Let's just let's quickly rate this so that we oh, can wait, all go number, back to our number life. two. Number one. Number two is oh, yeah, number sorry. one is Insider. I think Insider. Wow. Really? I do. Wow. I, do. I love Heat. Heat's like a ninety-five. Insider's higher. I, wow. Insider's gonna be Insider wasn't on my top ten for ninety-nine. It's gonna be top five. I think so. It's. Wow. I mean, it's gonna be in my top ten for sure now. It wasn't when we originally did this, it's, but it's it's so such uh, a better, richer, more exciting, more fulfilling movie, more relatable. I can't. I can't go into how much I related to Jeffrey Wigand in the beginning. The the it's tremendous. The, I, the, I, I the, home, it. the dad home life balance thing is is very close to my heart. Obviously, there's something that he's doing there that like the giving them the spaghetti with just the marinara. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Um, so as I mentioned to you on the email is we do a thing where we rate these movies uh, we rate it from 0 to 99 0 being the lowest, 99 being the highest uh, in 99 I would have given this film an 80, I liked it, I liked it a lot I thought it was really good but I was 19 years old and I, you know, and the world wasn't a fucking garbage you know, dumpster mm-hmm. fire so it just had a different effect on me before this podcast I probably would have given it a 92 and now after this I'd say probably a 94 or 95 like it's it's pretty unimpeachable my biggest issue is as the wife character, but like, it's a, it's a great movie. I mean, I don't know. I agree. I was, I think a 95 is probably where I would land in this in like terms of yeah. in, in again, not having um, watched as many or ranked as many of these as you guys, but where I'm at with like talented Mr. Ripley is unimpeachably sure. for me. Like this is pretty close because it's yeah. really pretty agreed with the female character issues. Um, but outside of that, it's pretty great. Yeah, yeah, it's really fantastic. Yeah. What's yours, Kenny? I, I mean, but this is this was no no higher than like a sixty two when I saw it in ninety nine. Like it was a barely right. I barely liked it, and that was because I was barely coming into my own as like a film watcher and appreciator. Uh, sure. Before this, I mean, I said ninety seven, basically perfect. I mean, you can't get much higher. I can't go that much higher, but ninety seven. I think this is a basically perfect movie. I loved every <laughs> second of it, and it's two and a half hours it's long, and I've loved every second. I, of my the- brother in law. I was going to say, my brother-in-law and I have um, a constant argument about movies, and so we decided we should start agreeing with each other more to make our relationship better. Um, and so we've been doing a like ranking, or not even a ranking, of just like what is a perfect movie and what are our perfect movies. Like, I think Silence of the Lambs is a perfect movie. I think like Sneakers is a perfect movie. Yeah, and it's not movie. necessarily like the best. It's yeah. the it, you know, but it's it's not this is the best. It's like the perfect version of this yeah. film was made, and you know, whatever. I agree. I mean, I think this. I think 
with one slight adjustment, which is I was like, I would just get rid of the female characters in this movie. I, like feminists right. don't hate me, but I would rather they're just not, they're not, they not be in here rather than, you know, be bad. Um, that, that this movie is perfect. The casting is perfect. The directing is perfect. The cinematography is perfect. The writing obviously is perfect. Um, so yeah, I'm with you. You're right about agreeing with movie, agreeing on movies. I thought this podcast was going to be about me and Phil arguing about movies all the time. <laughs> we really don't. We just agree on everything. And- <laughs> the only thing my, my brother and I, uh, my brother-in-law and I, the only thing we can't talk about are Nolan movies. We, we can really re- stretch the gamut of, of anything else, but Nolan movies is like, it's almost a safe word at this point where we're like, we have to, like, we just have to, you hate Pelican it? Brief is our safe word because we both agree that the Pelican <laughs> Brief is a perfect movie. So we are like, Pelican Brief. Just remember, we agree with about this. I, I, I am not, I'm not, that's fantastic. When it comes to Nolan by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I'm interested. Do you, do you hate or love? Um, I, it's actually not, I just am not like a, a lunatic for him. Yeah, so it's yeah. like, it's, it's just my, my likeness is not enough passion for, how how much my brother-in-law and frankly my husband like love christopher nolan movies and i'm like there's i think the dark knight is a perfect film i completely like that i i'm actually like totally in on it's more like interstellar and inception are films that i can or like dark knight rises are movies i'm which actually I watched recently and kind of aged very well. Um, I but, liked it a lot, and I couldn't really figure out why everyone hated it so much. But <laughs> it was, it, yeah. it, I mean, it's probably Hathaway's best performance. She's sort awesome. of. Uh, She's so great. Long, I watched her short series two last night. That girl is a great actress. She's I, great. I, I want to throw a hot take real fast before we go because you know three hours into the podcast is when I'll. I do I think, want to thank Liz for being I here for the longest episode. We've no, it's done. fine. I'm just jealous. You guys, I'm mad you guys didn't wish me happy birthday because I've aged 12 years oh, since we started. Oh, birthdays! <laughs> thank you. Thank happy you so birthday. much. Uh, my favorite Nolan movie. This is the hottest take I've ever given, but it's the truth. It's Memento. It just is. It's my actual, truly favorite right. Nolan movie. I think about it almost every day. Well, we can talk think- about them when we talk about following yeah. at some point. Oh yeah. yeah, that's right. The following. Um, yeah, I don't. I actually don't think that's such a super hot take. I just feel like these days, again, in this in this like litigation of of how yeah. percentage of right are we all, or like how percentage of a fan are you? Is it like I am a fan and student of Christopher Nolan yeah. because some of his movies might speak to me more than other movies. I don't think makes totally. it, you know whatever but it's also just real by the way my brother-in-law's 100 percent going to listen to this podcast and i'm just <laughs> excited for him to greg you've made it this far i finally mentioned you hashtag falcon reef <laughs> <laughs> all right let's well liz i, I want to say thank you so much for coming on we really really appreciate it incredible it. thank you this was great. fantastic and uh and we can't wait to have you back for the west wing when we do cover the west wing which will be a <laughs> blast uh, but thank you again so much for coming on we really appreciate it absolutely thank you guys just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it. You want a podcast like it? 1999. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.